Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us Captain William Palmer, United States Navy. And joining us from Texas is Curtis, Coach O. (laughs) (laughs) And Will, you are in Hawaii, right? Correct. I'm sitting um, on the lanai outside. It's a balmy 73, I think, with a projected 82 good trade winds so it doesn't ever feel all that hot you remember that's awesome yeah i can hear some of those characteristic birds from hawaii and we're really happy that you joined us this morning will thank you it's a pleasure yeah welcome <laughs> thank you curtis now will you've been in the united states navy for 34 years does that sound right that's correct yep. i was trying to do the math i think you came in in 1988 if i re- recall I was mm-hmm. in eighth grade at the time. I did not know you at the time. Um, I met you, I guess it would have been in 1995, probably. Hmm. That's um, about right. <clears throat> That's about halfway through my, that uh, air crew tour, yeah. Okay. Yep, you and Chris and I, I forget if Jen Doherty was Chief before Toke. you. <laughs> Chief Toke was the first guy I met. Is a short Korean guy. Um, <clears throat> seemed like really carefree, really always in a good mood. Uh, seemed like a nice, decent guy to be around. He, um, well, you know, we're already people are going to lose, be lost here because they have no context for what we're talking about. Yeah. I was in the United States Navy. I served for seven years total. Um, I extended twice. I might have even extended three times. I can't even remember, but, um, I was, uh, people ask me what I did in the Navy. And usually I just give them the short answer. I did, uh, I cleaned bathrooms <laughs> and, um, you know, but, uh, we did, we did a lot more than that in the Navy. And, um, <clears throat> I guess we'll just say I, I was a Chinese linguist. I was trained in Mandarin Chinese. We were trained in uh, intelligence um, and uh, other stuff as well. Um, I flew, I was in a, an element that flew air crew. Um, so I got my wings. And uh, when I arrived in Hawaii at my, uh, after years of training, uh, that's, what, that's where I met Will. And it was, should, can I describe the building, Will, do you think? I mean, it's an underground facility, multiple floors. You have mm-hmm. to walk a, a long uh, pathway in and then yeah. through a tunnel and on in. And, uh-huh. and from there, it's just, uh, it's basically How long was like that a warehouse. Tunnel? Yeah, yeah. Uh, How long know, was that com- tunnel? People would complain that it was a mile, but I bet it was, it was like what, a quarter mile. Quarter, maybe a little, almost a half a mile, but not, not, not to a half a mile. Yeah. Yeah, I Not would bad. say it was a quarter mile to maybe, yeah, something like that. I, I don't know exactly. I know that it made a certain sound. There's a characteristic sound of that tunnel when you're walking down the tunnel. And it's the sound of large fans is how I mm-hmm. would describe it. You walk in and, you okay, so this is underground. This is a Navy-run facility. Uh, it may or may not have been actually attached to another agency of some kind maybe i don't know i'm just speculating 
I was only there for four years. <laughs> Actually, there's a funny story behind uh, behind that, but um, it had to do when I got my award. I got an award when I was getting out, and the name of the agency was on the award. And I was like, I work for them. <laughs> I didn't even know. <laughs> I, I wasn't the brightest kid because I was like focused on other stuff. Okay, so back then I was focused on books, and you know, I was getting you know, getting my degree and stuff like that. But anyway, um, but it was uh. <clears throat> The Sound of Fans, and it was under, can we say what it was under? Pineapple Fields. It was under the Pineapple Fields. Mm-hmm. So this is run by the Navy. It was a Navy captain, which is Will's rank now. And Will, you were a first-class petty officer at the time. And I remember you had your air crew wings, and I think you already had one other designation, maybe two. Um, it, Will, I'm trying to, this is really hard for me to describe to people what mm-hmm. you were like because for me i was really proud of my air crew wings like i worked really hard to get those air crew wings i remember it was like a 10-hour exam and it was in flight and mm-hmm. it was like well it was longer than that because if you count the whole thing it was like probably 12 or 14 hours because it was pre-flight it was post-flight there's stuff in in the air you have to do um mm-hmm. There's a written portion. You, Open you and close quizzed. Book. Yeah, yeah. You were quizzed uh, on the fly. You had to put a parachute on within a certain amount of time, very small amount of time. There was all sorts of stuff you had to do. And mm-hmm. at the same time, there's like a mission happening. <laughs> and you're, you're participating in that too, mm-hmm. which we can't really say what that mission was. But um, um, I was really proud of those wings. And there were designations you could wear on your uniform, like subsurface, that they call them the dolphins. There was one that was a surface warfare. So subsurface warfare, you could get surface warfare, uh, air warfare. But each of these things required an enormous amount of work. And also you had to get agreement with the people out to sea, you know, on, you know, on station those people you've never even met we would go out as small teams we were not a part of the ships we were not mm-hmm. <clears throat> i was not a part of the crew normally and uh, i was just an element that would be like an adjunct professor i would like show up and um except for i had health benefits but uh you you, you would you know i we would have a, a job to do and oftentimes the, the ship would not even know what we were doing and, and the people on station would not even know what we're doing. In fact, mm-hmm. one, one, the, the, uh, the um, squadron that I was flying with that, where I got my wings, we couldn't even say what squadron it was to other people in the Navy. We were wearing hats that were not what the squadron was. Uh, basically we were relying <laughs> to other people in the Navy on, on mm-hmm. our own, mm-hmm. on our own base. Do you remember sometimes they give us a hat of a decommissioned squadron? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it was it was kind of a paranoid feeling for me uh, because I couldn't talk about what I what I did and not even with other people in the Navy. And so, OK, so like, for example, I've deployed subsurface a few times, four times. I went out um, uh, thanks to a guy named Senior Chief Berger <laughs> on Berger, <laughs> Senior Chief Berger. He took a perfectly good air crew guy and he 
threw me into special operations, which I didn't know anything about. And I was like, I didn't sign up for this. And he said, but you signed up for it now, right? Right, Mather? <laughs> and I Fallen said, uh, I signed up to fly. And he is like, no, I think you want to go on these special operations here. And I was like, sounds scary to me. I don't know, man. It's all cooped up. I don't know. I don't know these guys. Well, anyway, to get a subsurface warfare pin, you were basically not sleeping. You were up there mm -hmm. learning a whole ship. You had to basically figure out as if you were a member of the crew, how to fight mm -hmm. fires. And you, did you get one of those? I did. I did. Um, so that trip was, I think I slept on average about three hours a day, maybe two for 60 long? something days, about 60, 60 days. See, see, okay. Now I'm getting there. I'm young. I'm, I'm 24 years old when I mm -hmm. arrived. No, no, no. Sorry. I was, I was, uh, I was 24 when I got out. I went into the Navy right after high school. <clears throat> so all of my friends that were partying over the summer, the summer of 69. No, it was actually <laughs> summer of 93. Thank you, Brian Adams, though. Uh, it was summer 93. Bill Clinton was president. And I was in boot camp. And I got to Hawaii in September of 95. That's when I would have met you, Will, unless you were out mm -hmm. on a trip. And then I saw, you know, randomly people would show up at work in Hawaii mm -hmm. that I'd never met for like a month. And they're because mm -hmm. they're just coming back from a mission or a trip or a deployment or whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah. And so I would have met, I might not have met you right away, but I probably met you sometime that fall. And when I saw your ribbons, you had all these ribbons, like stacks and stacks and stacks of ribbons. It was like Costco for ribbons, like bulk ribbons. <laughs> and you had these warfare pins. And, and I had no idea what it took to get these warfare pins. But once I started figuring out, because I, I would deploy with these people that were getting these warfare designations, mm -hmm. I was like, how did Will do that? How did you... How did you have the internal drive to get all of those signatures from all those guys in the weapons station and the nav, whatever, the nuclear mm -hmm. station? Did you have to do something with the nuclear station and the you navigation? Had to learn, you didn't have to learn exactly how they did it, but like the cooling loop, you know, uh, a lot of the auxiliary machinery, like air conditioning, uh, water production, ventilation. Um, you had to have an understanding of how they, how they do it, um, in general. And some of the systems you actually had to trace, which was, you know, figure out where the pipes went, the primary valves. Um, that was particularly true for, um, for, uh, the ballast system. Um, but yeah, you had to learn about emergency power generation, navigation, um, communications, uh, basically from stem to stern you learned at least the basics of it. In some areas you actually had to memorize and draw. You had to actually draw systems too, to uh, systems, meaning like you had to draw the air conditioning system or the secondary or primary loop system or, you know, so that as you're walking through, I remember when I took my, after, after you get your card done, which is essentially almost like um, if you're a boy scout, you know, like, you have your list of requirements, right? And you sign off each line item in your Boy Scout ham, uh, handbook for each of the rank things, right? So you have each one of those. 
And when you're done with the card, it's called a qual card, then you have to do your walkthrough. And I remember walking through with the ship's navigation officer, which is a department head. He's, he's at an executive level, but he's below the executive officer and the commanding officer, but above divisions. So he has multiple divisions that he... Um, you're still on a submarine, right? Yep, still on a okay. submarine. So I had to walk through the nav, and I remember he we had to put in, you know, we had to hook into emergency air, right? Um, certain casualties on a submarine will make the air toxic. So you have to have these or a fire, for example. So mm-hmm. you put on this breathing apparatus and the, I know you remember these, but and it's then you had to fun. hook it. To me, it yeah, wasn't no. fun. Was it fun for you? Oh, no. So for my qual, we started all the way forward. He put a hood over me and I got, I got to hook up into the, um, the airline that went all the way through the ship and then goes, okay, you've got to go to AMR lower level. From yeah. the bow, and yeah, you can't and you know that see. air smells like something. It <laughs> wow. smells like the air smells like ass yep. or something. <laughs> it, I don't know. It smells like ship ass. Yeah, aiming. Yeah, aiming. It's horrible. You can always. You know, I feel sorry for the submariners. You know, they go out on liberty oh, or whatever. Too. You can, me too. You could still smell it on them, but um, yeah, yeah. So you're like literally, you're running. You can't find the next, the next outlet. You're desperately yeah. looking for it as the yeah. rubber is now on your eyeballs. It's sucking yeah, all yeah. the way in and you're and the, wheezing. Oh, it sucked. And the, you can't see very well. I mean, if it was really smoky in there, I, I just don't even know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, are you hitting your head and bumping around and stuff? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Yeah. You're, you look like a total idiot. I don't know how yeah. anybody ever won any war, basically. But I mean, and this is like the most advanced stuff, right? I mean, yeah. can you imagine World War Two with the kind of what they were using? right um yeah well well but yeah it took a lot yeah. how old were you so, when you were doing that how old were you when you came in the navy i was 17 which i beat my uh, my grandfather came in when he was 16 he faked his oh. signature to go into into world war ii so a little bit older God than bless him, him. Awesome. He was, I was just, yeah, he was a small guy. I was just in the at a world war ii exhibit at the reagan library honoring my grandfather who was a navy fighter pilot mm-hmm. and um there was a part of the exhibit was uh a big photograph of a kid that went from sixth grade to world war ii he was 12 when he signed up and he lied about his age somehow he got away with it wow this kid this kid was decorated and he got a purple heart and he got a i think it was a bronze star wow and um his bronze star was was yanked when they found out of his age. His mother told on him. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine fighting in World War II, getting wounded, and then your mother takes you by the ear and says, "Take, tell them what your real age is." <laughs> and you're like, "Ma, I got like a grenade stuck in my." Anyway, they, I think it was it was a Republican uh, president years later gave him his purple heart back but not the bronze star not the bronze star (laughs) but that's well you know that's crap (laughs) yeah that should have been like an automatic upgrade to silver i don't know what yeah i know you're you're not even old enough to vote (laughs) i guess it's fraud but you know but you did get wounded. You, you did have half your ass blown off. So, yeah. I mean, what, but what kind of fraud would you call that? Would you call that moral fraud? That'd be really hard. That'd be a really hard yeah. piece to sell. <laughs> well, actually, especially be, in war, it would be the parents, actually, because he was a minor. 
anyway, I'm not going to get into the technicalities, but, but will, I wanted to go back, go back to, I, I mentioned when you were going through what it took to get the subsurface warfare designation, you're a Chinese linguist at this time, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. didn't say that, but you were trained in Mandarin, right? Right. Just like you. Same place that I went, you were way ahead of me on, in terms of age. So I, we didn't overlap in school, but so you're doing all of this technical stuff. You're trained in language. You're not trained in all this other <laughs> stuff. And you're with these guys that are on the ship and that's what they do. They, that That's their entire training. And you're trying to get their signature and they, they don't even know what you do. Did you, they know you were a linguist when they were signing your stuff? So it depended on which warfare pin we were talking about. So for, for both, it was just, a, they knew, but they would know at different times, right? Who's signing so, your forms? Is it, is it a petty officer that's signing your forms or is it chief well, who, who had to sign your forms? Typically it's only the, the most senior people in that area or the division, right? So if you were in, if you're going to an auxiliaries, uh, the auxiliaries division, right? They would only have their top performers signing those off. And, and what Lucas doesn't say, because he's being nice, is that some of those folks don't want to give you their signature. That's exactly right. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Yeah. So why, now why, would, the why would they not want to give you the signature? Because you're not they're not part. You're not part of the crew. So, yes, it's kind of and, and they they're really, really busy. So they yes. don't really want to spend a lot of time doing other stuff. And it's almost seemed like you were. Um, many of them saw it as you're trying to grab something and not give back, meaning like you're going to get mm-hmm. this pin. It's for your own personal uh, mm-hmm. professional growth, which is very true. It is for your personal professional growth. But yes. at the same time, those of us who continue to go back and go back and go back on these runs, like what Lucas was talking about, you become a better crew member, safer if That's something true. happens. Because I, I, I can remember while I was doing my qual, uh, they had a casualty on board the sub. And the rest of the folks that we, Lucas and I worked with, they had no idea what the ramifications of this emergency was. And I'm the one that's telling them what to do and to haul, haul, butt, you know, start moving and get out of the space as soon as possible. Hmm. And um, it just makes you a better crew member. And, and in the long run, it ensures that the other crew members either don't have to go in to save your life or, you know, you don't get in their way if you know what's going on. So um yeah, I mean, there's serious resistance by some of the folks, right? Yes. Um, and I, I re- we ended up getting more lookups at the very end. And what that is, a lookup is kind of like, I hear you talk about grades, right? So a lookup is, <laughs> is that, is your, are you really getting an A or are you getting, you know, sorry for all the master's folks that are out there. Are you getting the, man, or the uh, standard B that you get in your master's course, right? Are you just passing because... It takes an epic level of crappy effort to get a C, right? Yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah. And so um, some of them, they're like you guys. They want to make sure you know it, right? And you know it mm-hmm. cold. And others mm-hmm. just want yeah. you off their, out of their face. So mm-hmm. what will happen is the great equalizer is the qual board. And that's where you get all the chiefs in there that want to make sure that you know it to wear that pin. You know what they want, you know, the standards that they would in, uh, enforce within their own crew. So typically you as a, as a augmentee to the, to that squadron or, or to that boat, that's where it's hard is in the uh, lookups. Yeah. 
use the word boat. Uh, you're the, the word boat is a kind of a quasi technical term in the Navy. What, what do you think it refers to? Me? It means a a ship with one or two decks. It's a very small, it's a small watercraft or a a submarine. All submarines are called boats. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Whereas uh, that would be something that someone in the Navy wouldn't know. They wouldn't know that a boat just refers to that. What you just said, like mm -hmm. a submarine is called a boat, but you would never call a ship a boat, right? That's correct. Like, I guess I I should be a little bit more, I should be a little bit more specific, Uh, a surface ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would never call that a boat. Yeah, no, no. Nope. Okay, well, um, now I want to get into your psychology here as you're working on your pen because you just said that you lost an average of five hours of sleep for sixty days. Mm-hmm. So you said sixty days. So I already know what kind of mission you're working on. I think, but anyway, I'm not gonna how did you do that how and how in the world what what was the driving force well i mean it is a big deal when you have the subsurface pen on your on your uniform that's a big deal in the navy mm-hmm. it's a big deal everybody knows what it is when they're in the navy mm-hmm. um it's a big deal to have any pen i think in my view i mean and and will had all of them i mean it's very rare let, let me let me get a little bit more specific here. The Navy is so broad with what it does. It's got surface, subsurface. It's got air. It's got ground operations, obviously. Uh, there's new pins that have been invented since I got out. Uh, uh, and But when I was in in the 90s, uh, surface, air warfare, subsurface, and air crew, and obviously seal if you got the special warfare pen that's that's huge uh, obviously and then you have you know the the seals always had the uh jump wings as well but you had all of the basically the non-seal designators you didn't have diver i guess but that's another one but um Mm -hmm. but well that took an enormous amount of work and and you did it all not being stationed in that full time in that thing you were intelligence and you were just popping Mm -hmm. here and there and you were somehow convincing these people to like basically sign off on all your stuff and you obviously had to know the stuff this took enormous amount of of dedication was it just an insatiable curiosity on your part so part of it was the fact that i knew i was gonna stay in the navy until they told me to leave right so all right uh, I grew up. Well, wait, with, hold on you know, a sec. Why, why yeah. did you? Why did you have that? Why? Why did you know when you were so young that you were like, "Yep, this is it. I'm going to be in the Navy forever." How did you know? Um, that? It's a co- probably a combination of about three different things. So, first off, I grew up. My dad was in the Navy. Uh, he got injured in Vietnam and then and then discharged. And then my grandfather was in for quite a long time. So he was in from World War II through Korea, and. I grew up listening to sea stories and, and, and so I tried to get in the Naval Academy, but my eyesight was bad. So they really wanted pilots. And I was like, I think I was the third on the list or something like that. So when I knew I didn't get the scholarship, I didn't want to have my parents paying for my future. I was kind of proud. I didn't want, I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to go on my own Mm -hmm. and get my college on my own. So 
I enlisted. I wasn't really sold on staying in at that point. Um, I did some stupid things when I was younger and um, I was kind of thinking about getting out. And I remember going home on leave and watching my friends kind of flounder between jobs as they experimented or as they were trying to figure out who they were. And I realized I really liked serving my country or I like serving people. And so I knew at that point after that first leave period that I was really at home with the Navy. But what really cemented it was that that one trip that you were talking about where I qualified. And I can remember talking to the commanding officer and he was asking me, the second class petty officer, for advice. And I was like, I, I just, it was empowering. Wait, say, say, but that, was, say that again and then we're going to explain yeah. the ranks. We're Say that one more so, time. Yeah. So I had a commander who was the commanding officer of, of that platform that mm-hmm. Um, and so he asked me advice on some tactical advice. I'll put it that uh-huh. way. Yeah. And so that was empowering, but it was also a deep sense of responsibility and the fact that, that, yeah. that in the Navy, yep. that could happen. And yep. not Actually, only because I was enlisted, mm-hmm. but just in general, I'm a young kid at that point. I, I think mm-hmm. I was, I don't even know. I can't remember if I was 21 or 22. I mean, like, that's cr- t- kind of crazy if you think about it, right? This, you know, easily. Let's, billion- let's exp- yeah, let, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Say the, say the numbers. <laughs> it's probably so, like today it's easily a billion dollar platform. Yeah, and you so, said b- billion with a D as in dog. <laughs> billion as in so many D D's as in dollars that uh, you'd probably have shock. Yeah. A billion as in boy, a billion. A yes. billion dollar profit back then. Was it how, how many was it a billion back? Oh, then? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But and you're and talking you about initial. Use, yeah. Use the word platform. What do you, when someone says that, what do you mean by that? I'm trying to avoid saying exactly what it was, but well, yeah, yeah but what you mean is it's a ship basically. That's correct. Right? That's correct. Or That's correct. it's, a, or it's an airplane or it's some way it's a, it's some thing that the Navy uses to perform its function for national security, protecting the country. Correct. Correct. So yeah, think okay. of it as a, um, a platform that delivers a mission. Yeah. So the platform is just what people say. I think a lot, most probably people got it just in case somebody didn't get that, what that was. Okay. So now in E5, there's nine ranks in the Navy. Actually, all of the services, right? <laughs> there's a, there's enlisted ranks. And so let's explain what enlisted person is. Enlisted is you go into the recruiter and, you know, those recruiting stations, uh, you usually have to go to like some swanky area like Beverly Hills because it's always the Beverly Hills people that have the recruiting stations. And I'm just kidding. It's actually the opposite, but, you know, <laughs> Beverly Hills people have never seen a recruiting station in Beverly Hills. It should be right on Rodeo Drive, in my opinion. But we had one. We were in a, we were, uh, you know, Littleton, Colorado. We had run right next to Southwest Plaza. I think it's still there. Uh, it's, it's in the same little area there. And you walk in, you talk to a recruiter. What was that like for you? How did, what did they try to get you to do? And how did you choose to be a linguist? How did, how did that come, come out? Well, you're, you're actually going to find this funny, right? So my, <laughs> my recruiter was a Russian linguist. Oh, you lucked yeah, out. You I did. lucked out. Yep. So again, it was one of those swanky recruiting uh, centers and on did North you know Oak about, and Kansas Did you know City. about being a linguist at the time? No, but I was crazy about Spanish. Like I had, 
a girlfriend from, you know, that was born in Mexico. And all we did was, you know, we jammed in Spanish a lot. I love Spanish. And uh, um, when he said he was a Russian linguist, that was game was on. Like I knew exactly that's what I wanted to do. So, oh, I mean, so there was lucky. What was yeah. his rank? What was he? Um, you know, I think his name was Denton Lancaster and he was a first class. You remember officer. his name? Wow. Oh, yeah. Definitely. He drove me to the recruiting center in his ninth, brand new, like 1986 or 87. Uh, he had a Mer- with the Mercury variant of the Mustang. And that thing was, it was like a GT. It was hot. And I, that, I was like, man, he could get this cool car. And he's a Russian linguist. Like, I'm like, I'm sold. Did you, um, so that would have been in during yeah. the Cold War. So the Soviet Union was a thing. That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was taking Russian at the time in seventh grade, if you can believe it, at Deer Creek uh, Junior High School wow. in Littleton, Colorado. They had Russian. They offered Russian. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm taking Russian because Red Dawn had just come out like a couple of years before. Yeah. <laughs> well, where, where did you grow up? Where was this? So, oh, I was born in Denver, not far from Littleton. I was born on yeah. at St. Anthony's Hospital on, you know, on Sloan's Lake right off of the 70 in Denver. And uh, saw so my family's out there. So I kind of split the time between um, Wheat Ridge and Arvada and all that uh, and Kansas City. So we moved to Kansas City when, uh, no, in, I think it was 77. Um, and then uh, grew up in Kansas City, northern Kansas City, Parkville area. Yeah. So not the most multicultural, but for whatever reason, Spanish was the thing for me in high school. Art, Spanish, Boy Scouts, that kind of stuff. So you went to public high school? I did. Yeah. Okay. So you're a public high school kid. You walk in. This guy's like, did he, did you were sold as soon as he said the word Russian? Yeah, definitely. I knew I wanted to join, right? Because I wanted to, I'd already made my mind up that I was going to join. And I, I was dumb at one point because I knew I really liked the Navy, but I think I entertained like the army for a little while, uh, the Marine Corps. But then when the Marine Corps said, I won't guarantee you a job, I had no intentions of doing it. And you know, what's funny is I took the defense language aptitude battery test, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the fake, it's a fake language. It's almost like Klingon written down. And unless you're a Star Trek nut, you know, it's a made up language. And I got done and they grade the test instantly. Right. And I I had food poisoning when I took it. I, I was delivering pizzas. And I had really bad food poisoning. I think I was throwing up in like the trash can at my feet well, while I was well, taking the well, test. Hold on. Hold on one sec. Yeah. Hold on. So you were saying you were saying. So, yeah, I was saying that I was taking that defense language aptitude battery test. Yeah. And uh, I'd, I'd get some bad pizza the night before. So I'd actually I don't know how many times I threw up that day, but I've got the I've got the trash can in front of me. I'm throwing up in the trash can. I'm taking the <laughs> test and I scored high. I scored like a 143 or something like that. And um, I don't that's, know. That's Do you really high. The, well, yeah, I, I think, don't remember the number. That's really high. That would be so, really high. Really what, high. What's the limit? Off the charts. What's the limit? I don't know, but it's really high. Um, so and that means that you couldn't take Spanish then, basically. Yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> the higher so you like, get, the, the, the higher. Well, you tell them. <laughs> yeah, the higher you get, they may want to make sure you go into a different classification of language. So. But it was really funny because I grabbed the I grabbed the trash can right and the liner because I didn't want somebody else to take care of it. So I've got this pack of vomit right? <laughs> I'm standing there 
and uh and i go to i'm trying to get to like throw it away and the guy who ran the test was a marine so he'd already called because he took the he he graded it he'd already called down all the marine recruiters that were just sitting around you know waiting for something to happen i guess at the processing station and i get met by these two huge senior ncos in the elevator trying to like literally persuade me to join the Marine Corps, but it was more like, oh, wow. really like negatively persuade me to join the Marine Corps. Like it was weird. And at that point I was like, no, I've, I've committed. I'm joining the Navy. Yeah. It was pretty funny. Well, that yeah. was a great holding, holding your bag of vomit. Yeah. We should, yeah. We should thank, we should thank those Marines for uh, being so sucky at convincing you because the Navy really benefited. <laughs> Yeah, what's funny is the guy that was in there with me that graded my test. He definitely didn't want the bag to be left in the in the <laughs> trash can at his at his place. Distracting. <laughs> well, yeah. So let me go back to when you said the higher score you get, you go into different. Depends on how close the language is to English, is from what I understand, and and Spanish is close enough where it's considered a category. I think two language, mm-hmm. just like French, like the Romance languages, mm-hmm. I would think. And yeah, then, so some. Some of them are, are more complex because they have attributes that we don't have. Like in Russian, you have demonstratives. Um, there's different verb conjugations. And I don't speak Russian, so I don't know all of them. But strangely enough, Russian was, what, a cat four, if I remember right. And really it what was, pushed. Yeah, it was a Cyrillic alphabet, so it's a different alphabet. Um, and then, of course, you got Chinese. How did you get yeah. into, end up getting into Chinese then? Well, my score was the one of the higher ones out of the group that came out of boot camp. So they asked me what I wanted, and they really didn't give me much of a choice. It was like Russian, Korean, Arabic, and Chinese, right? Yeah. And but they did give you a choice. They did, right? They well, they gave me. And we this all kind of got a choice. That where is mean this that, at? This is at Defense Language Institute in Monterey. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, when I first got there. So okay. what they did was they wouldn't guarantee me because. At the front end, meaning when I was still a civilian, they wouldn't guarantee it. But I got to Monterey. They said, here's your four languages. I just looked at which ones I wanted to learn. And I had no strategic design because, like, I knew I didn't want Russian. I'm kind of weird. I didn't want what everybody else was doing. Right. So I didn't want Russian. And uh, Korean. I didn't know anything about Korea. But I'm like, man, if half the, you know, the population in China can learn Chinese. I think I can learn Chinese. I'll take Chinese, right? <laughs> and Arabic, Arabic, I was thinking about like, where would I want to go in the Middle East if I ever had this language? You know, I yeah. thought, well, Chinese is a little bit better. Um, now, of course, I wouldn't mind learning Arabic. Um, I still think Chinese would be a better choice, but yeah, I definitely, if I would have had to do it all over again, I'd think about those two languages, but probably still pick Chinese over Arabic. Now, when you're in uh, starting your Chinese language training, at the Defense Language Institute of Monterey, which is at the Presidio of Monterey, which is an army base, still is an army base, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, in fact, the uh, CEO of that base was Colonel Sobachevsky. I remember that because he was Russian. He was he mm. was Russian born guy. He, he I don't know if he defected or what, but anyway, he was mm-hmm. a colonel in the army. He ran that base when I was there, and that's, that's- the same rank you are now. And I remember I was so scared of him <laughs> when he would walk by. Yeah, he would always be smoking a cigar and he would be walking his dog. And he just looked like just a scary Russian. <laughs> just like, Dobre utro, you know, you know it's kind of like, you know, you know, 
he would bark out this uh, he wouldn't say it in russian but it was it was like that means good morning in russian and you know he would anyway so it's it's so great to remind ourselves of what that was like learning chinese how long did it take you to learn the chinese alphabet there's 26 letters right oh my i think i'm still trying to figure out um how to even attack it i mean yeah. they tell you some how crazy do you do, number. how do you describe how do you describe learning chinese how, how, would, um, how would you characterize I'll, that how do you how would you how would you characterize that whoa <laughs> meticulous slow um get it characterize yeah. yeah that was a good that's a good pun i, I, I would that. say it's more short form than long form but it was it was good um are you calling me a communist <laughs> <laughs> so uh the communists made it short form characters yeah. that's an inside joke but uh so the I, I just think it's painstakingly slow language to learn because you could learn a lot of it from ear, right? And through romanization that we use called pinyin. But to really learn it, you have to be culturally immersed and you have to learn the language from the written perspective because Chinese that's spoken is completely different than Chinese in the written form, meaning the way they write stuff is different than the way they talk. And then, of course, broadcast and um, just like in English, it, you're around certain people, they have a different vocabulary where they, they adjust the the words they use. So you have multiple layers and it's really the written form that takes the most time. Even with automation now where you can actually write it down on a stylus, um, it still takes quite a while to read just a page. If it's a page in front of you, unless you're already up to like, oh, I'd say 4,000 common characters, it's probably going to take you a while to read a page. It's tough. Wow. And you need to be, up to speed on 4,000 characters just to read the newspaper, right? Well, yeah, but nobody has the 4,000. It's not like they go, hey, here's the 4,000, right? They just no. estimate that it yeah. takes about that much knowledge. Right, 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 right. Well, that's, and, that's very, I, I just, sorry, just so people no, understand, right. like the, <laughs> the, to put that into context, like with French, you know, you, you can read the paper with less than a thousand, you know, um, less than so a thousand, it, that's, that's less a than a thousand, what though? Uh, words was less than a thousand oh, words. words. I, I think, oh, I think it's okay. something like 700, 800 words and you're pretty yeah. fluent, you know? Yeah. Um, that that's, that's a huge, huge hurdle to overcome. So well, Chinese can be even more difficult because yeah. there is no breaks between the, like if you say the, you know, raccoon ate a fish, there's a space between each one of those words mm-hmm. and there's no there's no larger space mm-hmm. between words they literally are one character with the same space after the next character after the next character and it, there's no real clue in there that these three go together or these two go together mm-hmm. you just have to know the language it's it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. harder interesting yeah. yeah and a character is not necessarily a word in fact oftentimes it's not oftentimes a word in chinese is two characters Mm. and depending on how those characters that's what we're saying is you have to it's not a there's no alphabet where we have 26 letters yeah i don't think i fully appreciated this will until i started teaching little kids english which i did in graduate school Mm. and i i was teaching at this uh actually it was a chinese academy for satp these these poor chinese kids in la they were being tortured as a kid to, to prepare for the sat 
like really early. Now, I'm not saying they were good students. They weren't because they were just little kids, but their parents were insane. And that's why there's so many <laughs> Asians that do really well on that test. Shocking correlation. Amazing how that works. Well, anyway, um, uh, you know, the way they would speak Chinese in the home and their parents were, I guess, just really concerned that they would have bad habits with English. So 26 letters in the English alphabet, they all sound like something, right? So if you memorize those 26, you're at least good to go, kind of. I mean, it's not, the sounds are a little weird. Like with of, it's O-F, but the sounds like of, and, and that, how is, it's an F, it's not a V, it's, it's an F. And then you put two Fs there, it's now a F sound, off. And then you have the word cough, which doesn't even have any Fs in it at all. It's got a U-G-H. And then that's the same ending as through. And just the kids are just totally confused. It's like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, sorry, blame the Queen of England. But, but Chinese is even worse because you have to memorize what the character looks like. Then you have to memorize what it sounds like. <laughs> And then you have to memorize what it means, which mm -hmm. could change depending on the combination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like each character has can have multiple sounds too, right? Multiple yeah. sounds. And then you throw in tones where there's four in Mandarin, there's four tones and one unspoken tone. So te that would really be five, but, um, and a sound, one sound could have, even one sound and one tone of one sound, like ma, this mm -hmm. is the famous one, right? Ma, yeah. ma first tone could have, I don't know, seven, eight different characters. And when you look up those seven or eight and you look in the dictionary, What's there could be 15 is? different uh, <laughs> meanings for each one of those yeah. characters. And then yeah. you go to the second tone of ma and maybe there's 25 characters. I mean, it, it can get, is it that many? Wow. It's daunting. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, Actually, those are just numbers I threw out. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and then learning how to use the dictionary. Because there's no alphabet. So how no. do you use a dictionary? And so, well, anyway, we don't have to get all into that. But it's, yeah. it is a real chore. And in fact, when you mentioned the tones, you I about added brain aneurysm and melted down because I totally forgot about the tones. So here's a funny story. Um, so I was dating a girl in Hawaii that was Chinese and we're we're walking with her friends and her, she had one friend and Ch Chinese are typically not kind of raunchy humor at all. Right. Not at all. And um, she liked to tell dirty jokes. Right. And, you know, Chinese will say stuff like um, your skin on your face is thick, meaning like you have no shame. Right. Cause the opposite is you lose face if you do something shameful. Right. So that's the way of like them, like elbowing each other, like, oh, that was funny, but you have no shame, right? So I forgot one character and spoke the only other character in the wrong tone. So uh, <laughs> the, the word, the word is, they would say, which means the skin on your face is really thick. Well, not only did I forget Lien, which was face, right? I pronounced P in the wrong tone, which was butt. So I told her butt was big and like, they're all cracked it up. So I mean, disasters over like a tone. It's pretty yeah, funny. It is funny. Well, yeah. so you, you, uh, 
Now, Will, you, you're, you're convinced you're going to be in the Navy forever. You get all these crazy warfare designations. You're working underground in Hawaii, so you don't even get to enjoy the outside area because it's all closed. Um, you're, you're going on all these deployments and, and trips. What happens after Hawaii? You left in, what, 1997? Is that right? I did. Uh, so I, what did, you, I, uh, what did you do? Where'd you go after that? I was commissioned first... through okay. Seaman Admiral. So as part of the legacy, we, we call it the legacy Seaman Admiral program. And the only difference is um, essentially what happened is um, Admiral Borda had been commissioned on a similar program in, 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 sorry, in Vietnam. And he wanted to reenact that, which was a possibility for enlisted sailors to be commissioned based off of their contributions to service for their excellence and what they do. And so they tried it out initially with 50 sailors per year. Um, so I was in a part of the third, the third year of the Seaman Admiral program um, selected, you know, with 50 people to go to officer candidate school in Florida. And out, out of we the didn't whole Navy, go, right. And the whole right. Navy would have been how many sailors at that time? 500,000. Or, that's probably i mean that's the aggregate number of total you know of people but you had to okay. be i mean there was a lot of that there's a lot of other constraints you couldn't be 27 right um you couldn't you could have be, any you could be 28 but you couldn't be 27 sorry you couldn't be older than 27 oh, oh uh, okay. yeah and then thank you there's a few other things um but it, it brought that number down a lot now i remember like you have to take an officer aptitude rating exam, which is kind of, uh, you know, if you push fluid in a cylinder this direction and there's pressure on one side, it's a little bit like our ASVAB, which is what enlisted take, but it's also a little bit of attitude, like, hmm. um, like what you think about things or whatever. So they're trying okay. to find out conformity. And then there's a similar test for Did they want um, conformity? aviation. Well, aviation wanted it for the aviation element. They, they have a separate test and that one is trying to see how close to the edge you'll get. It's kind of like what kind of aggressive personality traits, because you can't be a pilot and be conservative. Right. I mean, you've got, to, sorry. You have to be um, a liberal. No, I'm trying to only, Dem only Democrat pilots in the Navy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you, they want some communist even better. I'm just kidding. I know a couple. So um, <laughs> I'm sure. But I, I'd, I'd I went say, through here uh, with one. Not really. I'm just kidding. There's, there's, there's some schools you'll never forget, right? I went, Lucas I went through, Sears, I went through Sear with the, an idiot pilot on at my side, but yeah. he got us caught. I, I, we wouldn't have got caught if he would have done what I told him to do. But anyway, yeah. Was, so then, uh, yeah. let me think. We uh, Sears not a good topic on this on this show because, you know, Malcolm Nance is going to pop up, and I, I don't want to be on camera talking about Malcolm. So <laughs> I don't even uh, know who that is. <laughs> an MSNBC pundit. Oh, okay. And I went through language school with him. Really? Yeah. And then uh, he was coming through for modern standard Arabic advanced or maybe intermediate. I can't remember. And then later on, I met him as a senior chief when he was at Sear school. Oh, yeah. So, but. And he's on MSNBC now? All the time. You can Google him. You'll, you'll see, you'll see Ben Shapiro annihilate him on debates. So. Mm. 
Oh. And when you listen to him, you'll as a former crippy, you'll you'll probably notice some issues with what he says. So, uh, but um, okay. anyway, he's a he's a very popular MSNBC pundit. But okay. Um, so I guess they take their if they, they were like, oh, you're in the Navy. OK, good. Then, you know, come on. You know, mm-hmm. we need as many of those people as possible. So we, we yeah. can show that we lo- we're Americans, too. and We love America. Yeah. So <laughs> if, if you want to go back to the numbers to figure out how many produce right. 50. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can tell you in my room when I the one now there's multiple tests of the OIR, right? This opt- mm-hmm. officer aptitude rating exam. There's probably. 40 people in the room with me when I took it, only two of us passed. So, wow. Yeah. And then the board. So I don't know what the aggregate number throughout all of the fleet concentration centers, meaning like the big Navy bases. Um, I don't know where, what that, where did you be. take that exam? Downtown, down in Pearl Harbor. Okay. It's a right? different so base. From, okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there were a thousand, I think 1500 people went to the board and from the board, they selected 50. Wow. That's awesome. That's a yeah. real, and I think captain Rappin at the time, who was the CEO of our mm-hmm. operation there, he was, he had been commissioned as seaman admiral. Did you know that? Yeah. He, when I left, he told me that that was his commissioning path as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I saw pictures of him as a first class, um, yep. like years before that. With the beard. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so, so you, uh, you, you were you on i don't know if we can say the name of our duty station there um but when we were at the same duty station in hawaii during the 90s um were you there for a full three-year tour okay we can say the duty station i mean there's legislation going on for um health there's some health problems some yeah. of them are having with asbestos so I mean, the duty station is known. So it's a, yeah, I was at NSG at Kenia for, for two tours. So six years, I left a little early. So it might've, I was there from 1990 to 97. I I remember that now. Okay. Yes. I do remember that now. Okay. So I'm just trying to get the the years, right? So you were there for almost six years. And at how far into that, the second tour, did you take that test to become an officer for seaman to admiral? About two and a half years, because they had to extend me. Um, I was supposed to go and be an instructor, and we, they were awaiting the results. So they allowed me to postpone my PCS until the results came out. Then I got extended for a little bit. But, um, yep, so it was like six and a half years roughly and then i went to ocs and the, the difference between normal and ocs for seaman admiral is that we don't have a college degree so we're automatically different than everybody else right so we're going to the fleet as a commissioned officer going on the ships or squadrons or seal platoons and we don't have our college degree so yeah we had to do our full at sea time to qualify as a, in our warfare areas before we were authorized to go to college. So we're all lieutenants when we finally get to go to college, when oh, all wow. of our peers wow. are getting their master's degrees. You're t- so a lieutenant 
let's go through the rank structure yeah. here. I think I, I got distracted earlier when I said in, what enlisted was, and then we start talking about, and then you went into the recruiting station, yeah. Russian language, but okay. So there's E1 enlisted. As you go in, you sign up. If you pass all the medical stuff and background check stuff, you know, you know, mm -hmm. you're not a felon, you're not on the run, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> then age requirements. In my case, my parents had to sign for me because I was 17 when I joined. Um, I was asked if I was a homosexual. <laughs> That's back then mm -hmm. under Bush, under Bush Sr. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you pass all these you know, valence tests, basically, yes or no kind of stuff. And um, you can come in. It's You sign a contract and you get paid really low, but... Uh, you do get paid and you get food and you get bored and you get to learn from the ground up. They teach you everything you need to know. So it's like, okay. Um, I, that's, that was how I went in. That's how you went in. An officer mm -hmm. is different. Um, but there's, there's nine ranks for enlisted. There's E1, which is seaman recruit, seaman apprentice, seaman. Mm -hmm. we We're talking about seaman to admiral. So seaman is E3. So then you have, Petty officer second, uh, sorry, let me get my petty officer third class, petty officer second class, which is E5. Glad you remember that because that's what your rank was when I last saw you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, petty officer, that so that would be like a sergeant in the army is an E5. Mm -hmm. A corporal in the in the uh, Marines is a, a is an E4 would be a second uh, would be a third class petty officer. Then there's a first class petty officer, which is what you were. That's an E6. That would be like a staff sergeant in the uh, Army, Marines. In the uh, Air Force, it's a tech sergeant, I believe. That's correct. Then there's a then there's a, a chief petty officer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and chief petty officer is a big deal. That's E7. That's a senior enlisted now. E8 is a senior chief. E9 is a master chief. And I hate it when I watch movies and they get those wrong. Like in, for example, GI Jane, when the guy is a master chief and they're calling him chief, which is a two rank reduction, idiots, idiots. I mean, you think that they would have like some kind of basic consultant on the set <laughs> saying you idiot. No one will take this seriously. Not you, not that you would ever take mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. stupid movie seriously anyway, but anyway, sorry. I'm, um, so you were E6 when you got promoted to O1 now, and there's mm -hmm. 10 ranks for the officers. There's for the Navy, there's ensign, which is like a second lieutenant in the army. Mm -hmm. um, then there's a lieutenant junior grade, which is like a first mm -hmm. lieutenant. Then there's a lieutenant, which is where you were lieutenant. Mm -hmm. Then you have lieutenant commander, commander, full commander. Mm -hmm. Then you have a full captain, which is what you are now. That's an 06. That's like a colonel. And then the Correct. very next one up is the is the 07, which is a rear admiral. So you're one lower than a rear admiral. And then there's four mm -hmm. admiral ranks or four general ranks. So I just wanted to uh, give everybody an idea of how far you've climbed. So you got um, 01 and you were how old were you when you got 01? 26. 26. And so you had to do all this training with all these guys that went to college. You had to get another a warfare pin, which is a sub, which is a surface warfare, right? Mm -hmm. That's, except for you had the gold because you're an officer. The enlisted have a silver. 
and you work your way up to lieutenant, which took what four years, something like that. Yeah, it's four years to lieutenant, and then you can go to college. So is that right? And you're so you're like thirty when you're going to college. Mm -hmm. What was that like? And I'm very interested in that as a as a professor. I wanted to know because my older students were always better in certain ways, but. Well, I think it's easier to prioritize when you're 30, you know, going through college. Where did you um, go? I went to University of San Diego. Um, were they paying international you, were, relations? You, you were doing you were getting paid, right? In Absolutely. Norm, it was salary. a Pell It was a, essentially a Pell Grant. I with one thing, I, I had to pay for books. That was it. Um, so, you know, like five hundred dollars a semester type of thing would come out of my own pocket. The rest was all paid for. Plus my salary, my housing. Which your, sal- your salary as an 03 is pretty good, right? I mean, I think yeah, I, I would. I 03 mean, okay. is not bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's not bad. Yeah. Compared to compared to E6, what was it? Was it was it a lot? more? Uh, I can tell you 01E from E6 was like close to a thousand, I think maybe maybe a, th- a little bit less a thousand then, more a month right okay and then it's about five hundred dollars paycheck more for 01 to 02 and 0203 but we were a five, also a little 500 per paycheck did you say yeah yeah about a six thousand dollar a year increase yeah roughly that would be, be five hundred a month not five hundred so um yeah you're you're correct you're correct yeah five hundred okay. a month difference man I'm seeing all these about dollar that. signs I'm seeing all these yeah. dollars Yo, you know how many you, you know how many new cars I'll be buying. So did you, yeah, you go out buy a new car? <laughs> I had a car problem, yeah, but I, I didn't buy. I, I was married, right? So I didn't buy anything like super cool. I was buying like a minivan and a a Civic or something. You know, I didn't have anything really nice. I had a I had a yeah. minivan when I was in Hawaii. That's the first yeah. car I bought. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a Mitsubishi something and um the i remember to add i had to add oil to it quite often and i had mm-hmm. to uh open the passenger seat and then the the hood was underneath the passenger seat and i had to do that did you buy, did you... it was it was cool though i took yeah. naps in there that's why i basically bought it <laughs> i take i could take long long lunches i was not a very good sailor will i was <laughs> <laughs> I was. I don't op- remember that. I was the opposite of you. Okay. I don't remember. I would that. go down and take a nap in my car. I remember laughing all the time, but I don't remember like having like discipline problems with you. No, no. Maybe I, it made me. Yeah. No one noticed that. That's why I did it because you know it was like so, someone would eventually say, "Where's Mather?" And so I'd have to make sure I showed back up. You know, but yeah. but so, so many people took a long lunch to go work out and go PT and train and stuff like that. So back then, if you don't, if you remember right, we could have what was called liquid lunches. And I don't know if that was like some policy. I highly doubt it. Right. The liquid lunch was go to KMO Farms and have a beer. Yeah. Lunch, well, right. <laughs> you, you can't do that anymore. Well, I yeah, never you can't did do that. that anymore. Of course, I never not. did that. I turned 21 there. Will. And I, I hadn't started, uh, I, I had, uh, when I, when I showed up, I was 20 and I, you know, chief Tokamoto and all that uh, chief Toke <clears throat> there and what's called the flight shop, Mo Lester, 
his well his last name was lester his first name was mike but he introduced himself as mo <laughs> and i never put it together i i never didn't know that was a joke mm-hmm. <laughs> until i answered the phone one time and i said petty officer mo lester and i was like oh geez that's what that is idiot <laughs> oh my gosh anyway so uh, stupid i probably shouldn't joke about that stuff because people have actually been traumatized by that stuff but anyway he uh he was a great guy but uh the first thing they told me to do when i got there was get a will get a power of attorney i was like get a will what are you talking about yeah yeah make sure you have a will because you might die and i was like holy crap (laughs) (laughs) and then get a passport get a passport and a will and a power of attorney i was like what the hell is going on here chill out Mm -hmm. hey chill out okay chill out okay uh-uh no but i didn't really do that i was too freaked out so yeah so we went and got a passport and a power of attorney and a will and just basically making sure you're squared away on basic stuff and then i was part of a detail that was working outside for this <laughs> this first sergeant this army first sergeant who was just about to retire oh joy and i was running the uh the what do you call that thing the thing that destroys classified it's like a little the burn the burn bags the burn bag facility that was what i was running as a third class i turned 21 on a work night and all my uh, language friends said we're gonna take you out you know so they took me out to like honolulu and so it was a wild night um i don't want to describe it uh, I'm not going to tell you who was there or what we did, but I, I got back at like 3 a.m. and I still smelled like alcohol when I showed up to work doing burn bag duty. <laughs> so that was a fun, uh, you know, you know, we'll just leave that right there. But I, yeah, I think that ha- that happened quite often, though, for a lot of people. Um, but will you I'm try uh, not to go down? I'm trying not to go down a bunch of like rabbit holes because yes burn, were, burn bag detail is definitely something i remember ne- extremely negatively because uh you know, if you remember good. right do you remember yeah. the the u-haul truck because they oh, they yeah. couldn't I drove the, it. it you were on it no 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 i'm talking about the one that opened up with ts coming out oh no no no, 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 over. no yeah, yeah. I, I remember i wasn't driving I, that one no, yeah no. i had duty the oh, next day goodness. that was not that was not one of my favorite days and you said said ts what's ts top secret so so what happened is the burn bag facility at at kenia the shredder broke and so they had to take it down to pearl harbor (laughs) and some genius said all right let's get a u-haul truck and i mean there's got to be officers who approved it right yeah so they got and these are like great inflated officers that you know (laughs) just like these were like third class petty officers they said okay well shove it filled with like top secret right and yeah. it's not just top secret it's like caveat material yeah right? sci which is it, sensitive compartment of yeah information. into the back of a u-haul and they didn't secure <laughs> the they didn't secure the door right so yeah. they, if they were driving over the well, an area that's got a huge ravine it's the milani gulch you're driving over milani gulch is the, this on cunia road or is it h1 h3 H- or h1 sorry h1 it's h2 h2 it's on sorry h2. h2 leading towards h1 right so it's and on the, a highway it's on a major highway oh it's like <laughs> a four lane on both sides right and then the gulch down into 
essentially a jungle, right? And that back opens up and burn bags are falling out. They're shattering. Idiots. Oh There's God. like top secret in people's like grills as they're driving through the paper <laughs> oh, cloud. Man. Yeah. So I ended up having duty the next day and, and, uh, yeah. Did, did you have to clean it up? Happy. How did they, how did they handle that? No, I had to deal with the sit reps that were the situation reports that were being generated uh, as the quarter deck watch. Right. So I had to deal with all the reports that had to be made and the security violation stuff from the, I was like, I was the OD. And what was funny was the person before me didn't turn it over. I had no idea it happened. Right. Cause they didn't turn it over with me. And XO, which was Commander Sablon, comes in. I remember him. And he's like fire, breathing fire at me because I didn't know about it. And I'm like, what, I what year my, was that? What year was that? That was, I think it was 96. It was like, I was a first class. So 96, probably on my way mm-hmm. um, the last couple, last year or so. But so now you, okay. So you're in 03, you're in college. Mm-hmm. What was that college yeah. like for you? Was it helpful for you? Did you learn anything? Was it a waste of time? It would, did you think, what did you think of your fellow classmates? Well, I would did say it was like a dream come true, right? I mean, none of my family members ever went, I mean, on my, yeah, on, yeah. That's, not, that's not quite true. On my mom's side, I had one aunt that was going to, she became a doctor and, but, cool. and I had one uncle who taught, whose wife taught at University of Colorado Boulder, right? She was a chemistry teacher. Do you, did you go to Boulder for a little while? No, no, no. Yeah, I, ta- so, I taught up there, but I, I didn't teach. I taught University of Colorado Boulder class, but I yeah. not on campus at a day spring. And I, I was yeah. just uh, it was a class that was offered for credit at Boulder. But no, yeah, yeah I didn't she's, go there. She's kind of famous because she taught chemistry and she was deaf. So, you know, she would a lot of people took chemistry either. They knew her. Right. But anyway, um, those are the only two. Certainly on my dad's side, my dad's side was. Uh, Kind of like Australians, you know what I mean? Um, the history of Australia, right? So if my family would have been in Britain, they probably would have been exported to Australia. So um, <laughs> I was the first to go to college. So it felt like a privilege. It felt like a dream come true. I was totally into it. And you took it seriously. Yeah. So I, the, the perspective I had was I wanted to learn international relations because it's kind of the other end of the scope from being in the military, right? So if you think about um, diplomacy and all the other efforts around international relations, it's learning about all of the factors that could lead to war. So I thought it was um, a good degree. It fit well with uh, Chinese background. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. And USD is, you know, a beautiful campus. Yes, it is. The professors are really, really good. Um, Hmm. so I had a a good time and I mean, they were small classes. So I think, um, one class was 45 people. Uh, that was the largest camp, the largest class I was in the whole Mm -hmm. time. And most of them were under 30 and you got a PhD. You didn't get, sorry, I I tell my kids all the time, don't go to the school that you're going to get a, you know, get taught by a master's degree candidate, which is essentially one pimple less than you and a degree you're not saying you you're not saying that you got a phd but you're you're saying that the professor that you Mm -hmm. taught you was a phd okay correct and it isn't so much that the phd is going to be representative of everything in the class that you're learning but it is a representation of the excellence in education that's before you the critical mindset and the skills even you know because they might have done some 
PhD paper on something extremely minor, you know, not minor, but very specific as compared to the aggregate, you know, sum total of the stuff that you have to learn, right? Um, okay. And I think it just means that, you know, they have got an extreme amount of experience on the basics and on the theory. And now they're allowed to publish their own thoughts, you know, as they do critical analysis. I think it's excellent. So whereas, you know, some of the colleges, it was master's degree candidates teaching your class. And I really honestly didn't think that was a good education. And we were just lucky that everybody was the only person who didn't have a PhD were PhD candidates and they were under the direct supervision of their chair. So um, it was wonderful. Um, I actually does, does got to any learn. Per, does any particular class stand out to you as absolutely. something you still Pre- remember? President and foreign policy. Um, why that? So the person that I that taught the class was Professor Klein. And Professor Klein worked for every president, like even in World War II. He was a naval officer in World War II, come out of World War II, oh, cool. and he worked State Department for people like Dean Rusk and all oh, these wow. prominent people. And he, he designed that, that class, President of Foreign Policy, around his own personal experiences. Uh, so what was great was he was literally, the, the premise of the class was every president will have one critical decision during the course of their presidency that only by the yeah. nature of the of, of the severity of the of the decision yeah. is going to either define them or it's the only it's only the president can make that decision. And so for mm-hmm. each president, uh, for each president, he had one specific topic. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was teaching it from he was in the room, like literally he flew to Europe with Kennedy. Wow. He was on the plane with Kennedy. And so um, there was the one that he really taught out of was the decision to provide nuclear capability to Britain. And that actually had transitioned after the assassination, right? So Kennedy was weighing it out, but he was the one who gave, you know, all of the documentation to Kennedy. And then when Kennedy passed away right after that trip to Europe, right, he got his assassination, it transferred over um, to LBJ, right? The, that whole process. And he was talking about how presidents attack it differently. You know, it was really, um, it was neat. It was a good topic because you saw not only the decision, but the leadership, right? How that leader themselves attacked each of the problems. Um, that was, was, that was my best class by far. Yeah. Very cool. Now you, uh, we, we did kind of skip over something that's I think big mm-hmm. from one to three getting that surface warfare designation, being an officer on a ship, what kind of ship were you on? So my first two ships were amphibious ships. So they were, um, some folks will call them carriers, but like a Marine carrier, but um, they're decisively smaller than, than a regular carrier. They're about 800 feet long, displace about 44,000 tons. And so they carry Marine Corps, the Marine Corps um, element that takes, that comprises what a Marine Corps task force or a a Marine air to ground task force. And they have uh, infantry, they have aviation and they have supply that go in uh, to the fight. They can either go airborne landing, you know, basically from the air. Now they use Ospreys and helicopters, or they can go from sea through AAVs. And then you also have to get all of the logistics and the equipment ashore. So that was, it was a big flat top um, ship. And that was my first ship. Um, 
I loved it because it was people like I've served on destroyers and, and yeah, don't get me wrong. Everything is about the people, but when technology is around like it is with like a cruiser or destroyer with advanced weapon systems, there's a little bit of a different touch to the, to leading on board those two ships. Whereas the, an amphib has not got as much technology, but it's the people and getting the people ashore. It's very much a labor uh, oriented business, right? So um, it was all about getting people to do the hard work. And uh, that's a great place to start. Hmm. Yeah. You said it's all about the people. Do you believe that that's kind of the key in advancing in the Navy or what do you think the key is to advancing in the Navy? Well, you know, for most of us, the key is, is um, executing the mission while, while keeping um, the people prepared, right? The sailors prepared both uh, at home and at work, right? So there's a lot more leadership responsibilities of a, of a military officer. Um, and I wouldn't say, I don't, I've not been in the civilian community, so I don't want to sound pejorative at all, but I mean, I can control somebody's pay. I can control their free time with their family. There are no labor hours. Ultimately, they can reject your decision to keep them longer. They can perform less. They can file grievances. But in general, there's, you know, if I need them for a 12-hour day, um, that could happen, right? It happens mm-hmm. all the time in all the military forces. So you just have a lot more control over them. And there's a balance in trying to meet their personal needs or their uh, personal desires with the mission and still accomplishing the mission because, you know, none of us would be employed in the military service if the mission wasn't the primary element because nobody gives you a job for no reason, right? They don't give you a job just so you can get them a paycheck and, you know, you have to perform something. So the crux is keeping the people, right? Keeping them trained and keeping them prepared um, for the future. And if you do that well, I think as an officer, the rest, um, will just flow naturally. And you trust the system to acknowledge when you do do that. Well, the system, the the evaluation system is, is, is dialed in and squared away. Uh, You know, there's two different things there, right? So there's your, your, the paper that's written on your performance, and then there's the board that decides for you, your promotion. So the paper is, you know, there's always going to be a debate over whether the paper the paperwork trail captures what you do and we rank people. So um, there's always a competitive element to it. So yeah, some people get left behind in that process. Um, But most of the time they choose the right people. The boards are actually, in my opinion, the boards are almost always right. I mean, there's occasions where people get selected that shouldn't, but it isn't because they weren't provided. It wasn't because they were provided the data and chose to omit the data. It's because sometimes people won't uh, report, right? Or don't, uh, it's not in their paper, meaning their evaluation. So uh, without saying names, I knew like, for example, one individual. You don't have to say who, names, just give us their yep. social security number. <laughs> so I had to brief this one individual who's going off to command and it was a, it was a destroyer. So he's off to go to his destroyer and he had to do his executive officer tour first for 18 months. Uh, and then he would fleet up or become that ship's commanding officer. And while he was the executive officer, they called in an, they called in a uh, inspector general and 
they found out so much stuff about the guy, right? So there, mm. there was not even a part of the IG, and oh. and they fired they fired him. But what the rest of us knew is that his boss at one of the fleets that he was at, they gave him good paper. Did not know because no one told him that the senior watch officer would never pair him with a female duty driver because he was, you know, Ooh, that's so, not good. Yeah. So one individual doesn't good. have the backbone to bring it up and allow it to be dealt with, held it tight. And that person wasn't the person who would write his evaluation or his fit rep. And so it slid through. So uh, most of the times. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, very few times do you see somebody. Yeah. That has bad paper. Or, uh, or bad representation to a board that would get promoted. So okay. I, I trust the promotion boards. I trust the selection boards. Yeah. What's the, uh, before you hit, we hit Lieutenant Commander for you, mm-hmm. what, what uh, would you say is the difference? Just for a general audience, they might not know exactly. They've heard these terms. What's the difference between enlisted and an officer for you? And you can answer that however you want, whatever oh. comes to mind. You obviously lived it, but so there's that aspect, your own personal experience, your professional experience, but, Mm -hmm. but just the theory of it too. What's, what's the difference in terms of everything? (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think you, the easiest answer is responsibility, right? So, um, an enlisted person joins, um, they could have a college degree. So that isn't education but they join to perform a specific function. They learn a job, right? And as they start out, they're, they're primarily focused on that job. Uh, and then when they transition in their career, usually after they re-enlist and they decide, you know, that's kind of to me where, where professionalism really starts is that second enlistment because you decided that that's yeah. your career. And so at that point, we start adding leadership to it, whether it's um, the leadership of that skill set within a within the ship or within the command that you're at, you're starting to lead. So you become subject matter experts in your area and you're starting into leadership. And then finally you would potentially you're represent. Still on enlist, you're still on yep. enlisted though, right? This is enlisted. Yep. Okay. Yeah. This is kind of like a, a, an explanation of how a career progresses, you know, from the very beginning of enlisted to the so end enli- of your enlisted. enlisted are subject matter as experts. That's what you said, right? Yes, that's correct. They're supposed to be, as they go further and further into their career, they are subject matter experts in whatever they do. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that, but as they get more and more and more senior, they do more and more like at the chief petty officer level, they start training the officers so that they can make larger systemic decisions on behalf of the mission for the commander for the commanding officer. Right. Um, let's, 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 let's clarify that. So you yep. said E seven, E seven mm-hmm. chief petty officer. That's right. Not E nine, yeah. you Hollywood idiots, but E seven. That's correct. E seven. Absolutely. E seven is a chief petty officer trains the officers, which make more than them. <laughs> absolutely. Tell, explain yeah. that. And, and is the pay difference justified for officer versus enlisted? I asked that same question to Chris Ty when he came on Lieutenant commander, Chris yeah. Ty. I like his answer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Why does, why does that chief petty officer? Because as a division officer, when you're, you're an ensign or Lieutenant JG, an 01 or an 02, your collect generally your collective experience is not that high. Whereas the chief petty officers got 10, 15 years doing what you represent. So if you're the What's, gunnery officer in terms of a chief petty officer, what's the, 
the minimum you have to be in to get chief petty officer typically well typically it's 12 years 10 10 to 12 years is your typical promotion to chief okay now there's there's all the way to 20 and there's down to six so um oh wow down to six yeah yeah i I met a guy who was a six-year chief the guy was a rock oh he's a rock star (laughs) that guy that guy how's that possible i don't know i don't um he just came in higher in rank and then he was meritoriously promoted. And when you get meritoriously promoted, your day starts then. And if you're the Navy started a program where if you're early promote, this is going to get in the weeds for your, your viewers, but you can All get, right. if you're performing well enough, you could get promoted earlier than your peers. And he was a former cop in Puerto Rico. He could lead anybody like anybody. The guy was super good at leadership. And you knew, you knew him personally. Yeah. He worked. We worked closely at ATG, so I wasn't at ATG, but I worked at their uh, another command that dealt. Okay, so it's possible. Yeah, that's not normal. It's usually like twelve years or fourteen or something. Seems like chiefs have been around for a while. They're usually in their thirties. To me, I mean, when I came in, when I was in, I came in when I was seventeen, so eighteen. He came in later, so he was over thirty when he made it. But yeah, this is kind of a novice question, but it's been humming in the back of my head because mm-hmm. you mentioned that you were a boy scout did, mm-hmm. did you do your eagle yeah so, i did so when you do your eagle hmm. my understanding is you can come in at a higher rank out of uh boot camp is that right i don't know or, that I, they didn't they okay. i came in as a senior recruit so. okay. um there's also rumors that you can wear your eagle scout you know ribbon medal Oh. with the uniform that's not true he, you oh. can't wear that with the uniform okay. so when i was at cunia i i oops i said it you already said that we could say it. okay yeah so <laughs> nsga cunia naval security group activity uh, cunia when i was there i was working as a command language pro assistant command language program manager under chief um ken Merritt. yeah ken who's also my instructor at Goodfellow. Uh, he, um, he was a great boss. I loved him. I still love him, but, uh, he, um, um, well, anyway, it has nothing to do with chief merit. There was a guy there that was uh, this poor kid. His name, his last name was swallow. Not kidding. And I'm thinking, so he has a different service. He <laughs> he came in the Navy. The rank oh, no. is seaman recruit. Yes. Swallow. Yeah. Think, okay. been- and then there's a seaman apprentice. And then E3 is just seaman. Yes. If you remember right, you flew with one that was stationed in Misawa. Was that was that what was his last name? Can no, hers. Hers. Same last name. I don't know if they were married or what, but yeah. Oh no. Yeah. I don't. I'm sure if she's happy to get swallow, promoted. You have to be an officer. You have to go to college. Get, and be an officer. Petty officer as soon as possible. You should just meritoriously promote that person right away. Just yeah. like, right, exactly. even if they're a dirt bag, just, yeah. the, just out of compassion. Just skip right over those. So you say that the officer pay, which is quite a pay bump, is is totally legit. And it's because of the responsibility right. difference. Yeah, I think I think it is. Well, first off, the our military services are are based on a equal- It's 
it's more equity, right? Than it is any meaning that all O3s make the same amount. It doesn't matter, you know, base pay, right? It doesn't matter if you're a surgeon or a surface warfare officer, an O3 makes the same amount. Now, they can later on choose based off of either retention of that skill set to provide bonuses that keep them in. Kind of like when we were linguists, we would get a bonus for reenlisting, right? Okay. But our pay was still the same as, yep. you know, culinary specialist, right? Mm-hmm. So the, ba- the pay is all equal yeah. across right, the board. Right, right, so, right. Um, the, so when I talk about my experience as an officer, I don't think Chris, Chris Ty would, would, uh, say any different about it, but I can only say it from a surface warfare perspective versus maybe an HR officer or whatever. As a surface warfare officer, I had to drive the ship with 300 people sleeping below. I had to execute the mission as appointed by the Admiral in air defense or, you know, and and anti-submarine warfare. And um, that weight is immense. And then you throw, that's just as a division officer, right? So you're operating Mm -hmm. your ship or you're down in the engineering department running the plant. Um, That's less, there's less people in the junior officer rank that do that, but you you could be operating that propulsion plant. Was it a nuclear powered ship? No, no. I mean, you could, if you, or a nuclear right, right, surface right. warfare officer, but I was not. No, I was smart enough to stay away from that. <laughs> um, the uh, and then as you become a department head, it's even more weight, right? Because uh, you've got four different new jobs, right? You typically a department head has four divisions. So as a division officer, you have one division. You know, so you, like for I'll give you an example. Um, a weapons officer has gunnery, the gun the gunnery folks. He has anti-submarine warfare he has tomahawk and um vls or vertical launch system so tomahawk is a cruise missile and so he's got like you know all these divisions and from there all of the associated ordnance the systems that operate them and it's as a gunnery officer all you have is the five inch guns that are you know on your ship or you know some small arms you might run a, a small program but when you become a department head, you've got all four of those divisions, all their associated programs, and the conduct in war of those of those divisions, right? So now you went from, I don't know, 20 people in your division to now 60, 70, 80, whatever that number is, and you're That's representing that huge aspect. So it's a lot. That's a and then lot. you're That's still yeah. you're still standing watches. So when you're a department head, you're in charge of fighting the ship. That's what you do. You're a TAO, a tactical action officer. And, and that's for fighting the ship. If you're, you know, if war starts out and you're allowed to use ordinance, you know, uh, as a part of offensive action, then you could be executing that. But generally a TAO is to defend the ship. So you have to get uh, weapons release authority in the defense of the ship granted to you by the commanding officer. And you've got to know all your weapon systems and you've got to stand all those watches when you're overseas. So, um, that's a intense amount of responsibility and you're standing those watches while you're running all of your ship and you're preparing for inspections and you're doing all that. It's a different level of, of work. Um, mm-hmm. I would argue it's a, it's a little bit more hours. Is it yeah. labor? Is it labor intensive like enlisted? No, it's not. It's decisional. Um, like you're not needle gunning a, a ball or I'm sorry, not a ball. You're not needle gunning a bit or a chalk or down on the anchor doing that hard work. Don't get me wrong. It's all hard. Um, 
So yes, I do believe that there is a reason for it. And, but I don't think, and I, uh, one of my CEOs used to say this all the time, where I'm not more important than the deck plate seaman. I'm just trained to be where I'm at, meaning they're trained to be where they're at and a, they're of value to the crew and to the mission. I'm mm-hmm. trained to be where I'm at. I'm of value to the crew and to the mission. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you believe you're better than everybody else, you won't lead them very well. And I really like that, that idea right. that he said. Right. It just, right. I'm 25 years into my career. This is where I'm supposed to be. You're mm-hmm. three years into your career. It's where you're supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. completely believe in that. As far as the, the Chiefs go in relation, the pay starts to get closer to that of a J.O., you know, if not mm-hmm. a little bit better. And, um, I had yeah. one CEO who, um, I had to talk to about chiefs, right? So the chiefs are, are a part of our leadership construct through every level, right? So he had believed that because, um, recruiting officers got really hard for a little while, meaning that the GPAs went up, uh, we were retaining a lot of people. And so it got, it got really hard to get an officer into the Navy because there wasn't, there was, it was a lot more competitive, you know? So like a friend of mine, he had like a 2.8 GPA. He's a criminal, criminal. Um, He's a criminal. I for, no, the criminal, what I forget. Anyway, justice, justice crimin- criminal justice degree, 2.6 GPA. And he could be, he became an officer. Now you fast forward to when I was in XO and you probably wouldn't go to OCS with a 3.6 or below. And they were looking for STEM degrees. So the recruiting changed. So his comments were at one point that he felt that, you know, our junior officers were surpassing our chief petty officers and that we really didn't need them. And I'm like, well, sir, you do. And I talked to him about the fact that when you're a division officer, you have a chief that's next to you. When you're a department head, you have a chief, a department leading chief petty officer to help you. When you're a commanding officer, you have the CMC. You go all the way to Mick Pond and the chief of naval operations. You always need to have that close-knit bond with each other that is Mick paramount Pond, to leading sailors. Mick Pond is Master Chief Ma- of the Navy. Master yes, Chief that's Pet- Master, Chief Ma- Pet- Master Petty Officer of the Navy. That's correct. And so I think that that's a structure that all of the services have. We just have a little bit more of a, of a special appreciation of the E-7 that is really codified by our traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the E-7 and the Army Marine Corps Marine Corps is a little different, but Army and Air Force is an E7. They're just one pay grade up. They don't, when they go from tech sergeant to master sergeant, they don't do a special ceremony or, or whatever. We do, and we we hold our chiefs with high regard until Cap- they prove otherwise. Captain Palmer, where were you on 9-11? Wow. So I was actually at college. Um, that was the time where. That's what I was thinking. Um, yeah, I was there when. Uh, you were in 03? Mm-hmm. Yep. I was sitting, let me think, I had, I had arrived at college to take summer class. By the way, if you're a, if you're a budding student, always take summer and winter classes, by the way. Yeah. Um, they're, they're much more fun. Um, but um, so I was, I just got done with logics class where I ran Logic. into a, Ooh, nice. yeah, I love, yeah. I loved it. So um, I, I ran it ran into a buddy that was on Kitty Hawk with me. We're both seamen admirals moved in next door by happenstance and me and him were getting ready that morning to go into college for the actual start of the semester. It was the first day of school at USD um, for the fall semester. And we're, he calls, he calls me 
I don't think the plane landed. We're arranging it and, or the plane had struck the building yet. Um, but my wife called me on the cell phone. She goes, you got to turn on the, you got to turn on the, uh, um, TV, right? So turn on the TV and watched it sitting on my ottoman on my way to college. And what's really, you know, I, I tell us about okay, how so, you were feeling at that time. What? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it changed the path of my life completely. So I had, I had a authorization to go back to cryptology, right? I was already accepted to lateral transfer. That how means far go in, from one how skill set. left of college did you have before you? you I had, just started it. So two oh, and a half so years. You, oh, so you were in the beginning of your college. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was technically supposed to, um, that they wanted me to go do a cryptologic tour, but they turned it down. So they said he's got to finish his college because he's in that program, the seam demo program. So I was sitting there. I was going to be a cryptologist and um, I'm about to start my career. Right. And all I could think of is my dad in Vietnam, my grandfather serving in World War II in Korea. My, yeah. So I called my detailer. How did you concentrate on school? Like I I would have been like, let's, uh, but you have to finish college, right? Right. I have to, there's no, there's no choice there. I have to. So I called my detailer and I said, all right, where, where are you going to send me? And I'll just put it this way. It was nowhere near the fight, nowhere near the fight. And I was pissed because I was like, you know, this is my generation's fight and I'm going to be what, you know, yeah. You know the you know the areas you where were you ready. Don't want to go. You were right? ready. Yeah, 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 I was definitely ready. So um, I basically backed out of my uh, commitment to go cryptology because I wanted to contribute to the war immediately. I didn't want to sit around. So yep. you're saying cryptologists sit around? No, I'm saying that the where they were going to send me for three years was nowhere near the fight, and yeah. I wanted to go immediately. So oh, yeah. now you. have somehow concentrated on school during this time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. If you remember, right, that's when the EP3 went down, right? Right before the quadrilineal defense that, review. That was April of 2001. Mm-hmm. I was in, that was George Bush's first, George W. Bush's first um, major thing. A lot of people don't remember that. I remember it very, very, very well because I was in seminary at the time. And I saw it in the newspaper and yeah, I knew people on that plane. I know people on who were on that plane. Um, I'm friends on, I'm friends on Facebook with people that were on that plane. I went through training with people that were on that plane. Yeah. And I, so that was our mission and I probably shouldn't say more than that, but, um, so that was the time frame that I was going to college. How did I concentrate on it? I just, it was my duty to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I was a news hound, believe, you know, I was a news hound. I, you know, the first, I don't know if you know this, but one of the first deaths in the, in, in the theater was one of our VQ one shipmates. Right. So he had, he was a ground pounder on one of our VQ crews um, and he converted to seal. And if you, it was like the first few days of the war when they were laying at 46s on the mountaintops. And it was one of those, you actually get to see it. It was one of the C-130 footages, the AC-130 footages where the guy is standing on the edge of the, um, 
stern of the 46 CH 46 helicopter. And the pilot had to bank hard because it was shot at. He fell off and was um, assassinated on the ground. He was one of our shipmates. So, you know, I got to see a lot of that and it hardened me towards getting out of there. So I literally finished a four-year degree in two and a half years. I was taking 18, 21, 18 to 21 semester hours every time. Summer class, I was taking six to nine, you know, credit hours. Wow. You know, I was pushing to get out. So now, uh, well, during this time, were you, did you have any collateral duties you had to do? Did you have to drive into base to stand watch? Did you have to do anything like that? You just could totally no. concentrate on school. That's right. Reason yeah. I, I asked that is because for those of you who don't know, and I'll just share my experience when I first got in the Navy, the, when I got to the army base to, for language school, we had to stand watch. You recall that yeah. we had to stand watch and it was drilled into you. And we actually had to stand watch in boot camp. Actually, mm-hmm. it was drilled into you from the very beginning that you not only have to do all of the stuff you normally do, which is already a long work day. It's already long mm-hmm. and hard, but then you also have to do extra crap. And, you know, you had to stand watch and sometimes you had to stand watch all night. And it was just when it was your turn, that's what you did. Mm-hmm. And I remember Kunia I had to stand watch. And um, sometimes when we were deployed, well, flying was always a really long day, but but being deployed uh, on special operations, you'd work 12 hours a day for seven days a week. And then on top of that, you well, you were getting your your designations, but sometimes like we were sleeping in the weapons room, which is where mm-hmm. the torpedoes and the tomahawks were mm-hmm. and they would do a weapons move. And they were like, sorry, we have to do a weapons move. We have to move these things around because something in them, I don't know. I didn't understand. All I know is I wasn't going to get any sleep until my next 12 hour workday. So it was stuff like that. And so that's why I asked that question. It's probably one of the few times where I didn't stand duty was when I was doing my college degree. Yeah. You get your college degree. What happens after that? You're still a Lieutenant. Right. Um, okay. So I head off to department head school, right. Which is where they, it's about nine months to a year worth of training on how to uh, wow, really? fight to fight ships. Um, some of it is going to wow. be specific to the job you're going to do. Like I was going to be a, a weapons officer to combat systems officer. So I had to go to a bunch of Aegis classes. Aegis is the weapon system. It's basically uh, the name for mm-hmm. our weapon systems that okay. are on destroyers heard, and cruisers. I've heard that word a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's a long class. So you, you do all of that. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I showed up to my first uh, department head tour, which was on a pre-commissioned unit, which is kind of funny. Like I, I expedite all the way through college in two and a half years. And then I go to a ship that's still being built. <laughs> Great. Hurry up and get there. And then it's yeah. like on the ground. Yep. What, what ship was it? Uh, USS Nitsa, named after Paul Nitsa. So what's interesting, okay. remember we what talked about ship was it? it was a destroyer. So you remember I told you about Professor Klein? Yeah. Who served under Kennedy. Well, they knew each other. Nitsa and Klein knew each other. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so Nitsa's the you know, Nitz has done a lot, right? So he did bombing assessments in World War II. Um, 
like with special forces dropping into Germany, right? And then it comes out of there. He did monetary stuff as well during World War II. Comes out of there and he starts writing. He's part of the folks that wrote um, uh, the policy for reestablishing Japan, right? And and Europe. Um, And then he goes in and he has diplomacy all the way through until I, I don't, I think, he, I know he hated Nixon. So I think, I don't think he served in Nixon's administration, but um, from there he went off and did uh, all the way through to Reagan. So the walk in the woods when the salt treaties were signed, that was, that was him that did that. So essentially they all get there. I forget which Russian leader was in charge at the time. And they show up with all their documents and they plop them down on a table. And I guess we didn't believe they were going to really talk. So we didn't bring any documents and the Russians were ready to like haul butt out. I think it was, this was a Catholic. And so Nitsa grabs his counterpart and they go for a walk in the woods and Nitsa saves it, right? He basically comes back in, saves it so that we can go into some, you know, our uh, following, de- you know, de- declining numbers of nuclear arms after after reagan so did you did you have any choice did you choose that ship because you like no, the guy okay no no um yeah so what city was it in what started out in bath maine yeah up in so bath that's maine. where you were that's where mm-hmm. you but that's not where it was stationed no it ended up being stationed in in norfolk virginia so i did a lot of time i've heard of, of that time. city i've heard of norfolk virginia mm-hmm I think there's a there's a ship there. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually a it's huge a na- navy base, right? Yeah, it is, and it's it's immense. I mean, the amount of uh, military infrastructure in Norfolk is is really big. So um, now, what now? What department were you ahead of then when you got there? Started out with weapons, and that was oh, challenging because you started uh, out with. So do you? They they switch you around so you know all the whole ship, or well, no. They'll, they they do that that's correct but okay they don't that's it's hard to explain so i was detailed there to be the weapons officer and the combat systems officer um it was a three-year set of orders whereas most other department heads would get a year and a half set of orders and they would go to like be the operations officer and then okay the following time they would try to go they would go to another ship and take on another job sometimes that would be the first lieutenant on a amphib or it could be off to their nuclear power requirement or you know so the system inherently cooks in a lot of diversity and job titles yeah. because you or at least job experiences so that when you become a commanding officer you're not just one-sided you're not only ops right mm-hmm. you've got some engineering experience or you've got you know other experiences so it isn't that you arrive on a ship and the co goes i'm going to make you department head of every department on the ship for during that time frame yeah okay it's the navy system that cooks in the diversity not the co of that ship for the year and a half did you choose weapons or did that did they give that to you yeah you fill out they call it a dream sheet and then there's dream crushers called detailers so you fill out your dream sheet they they do their best i think to try to get you in the top five of your choices and i did want to be a weapons cso they they call you weps what do they call Mm -hmm. you yeah Weps, weps and so um, because I had all amphib experience, meaning those, you know, the Marine haulers, um, mm-hmm. it would made that first, that weapons officer tour really hard because you're doing stuff you don't do on amphibs. The, okay. 
the reason why I, I, I was a good CSO was my our, our Chinese background, right? Tactics and stuff. So I was able to do well as a CSO, but it was hard. It was a hard tour being a weapons officer when you've never handled ordnance. That kind Could of stuff. You, so. Did you know how to drive that ship? No, I had to learn. I mean, because a gas that. turbine is really responsive, whereas a steamship, um, the main reduction gears are, are different if we're going astern and was steam this destroyer was it a nuclear destroyer or was it a different okay it was not okay destroyers so since you left we don't have any nuclear cruisers anymore so uh when you left there were gas turbines um some steam and nuclear the nuclear is gone steam is only for amphibs and um was my leaving, ships was my leaving the navy part of the decision of the navy to get rid of the nuclear ships was it was that now, now that mather's gone that let's well, get rid of i would nuclear. say you're more of a steam guy than nuclear so i don't think that would be true I, yeah I, like I wouldn't be surprised if they, we declassify some of these and I, I would not be surprised to see my name petty officer mather now that he's gone let's get rid of the nuclear because we were, he was the only one why we had nuclear. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I came out of boot camp and I was like, "We're keeping nuclear up in this bitch." <laughs> and they were like, Get, "Okay, sorry, I, I'm um, weapons." You go from that to what? Combat systems officer. Combat systems. Okay. Now, when did you make a lieutenant commander? How far was it during that tour on the Nitsa? No, I was actually I I got promoted like a month before i departed okay so you yeah you, I, I went to department head school early so typically you would make lieutenant commander on the ship right and you would be there for a year two year and a half but because mm-hmm. one i didn't get my master's degree with all the other folks right mm-hmm. yeah. so standard yeah. naval officers getting their master's degree while i was going to get my bachelor's degree yeah, so, they, would be, and they then, would be over at postgraduate school, which is also in Monterey. Mm-hmm. I knew a lot of Navy lieutenants because they went to my church. I still know. I still know. I don't. Well, they're not lieutenants anymore, but obviously, but I'm still friends on Facebook with some yeah. of them. That combined with the fact I wanted to get out for the first, you know, because of the war. Right. Um, so I want to mm. get out fast. So I showed up and I started my department at tour a year, two year and a half earlier than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were, how long were you a Lieutenant? Lieutenants are six years. Okay. So you were on the NHTSA for three years. Mm -hmm. You were in college for two and a half. So that's five and a half years. Mm -hmm. So you're saying you got promoted on the NHTSA or after the NHTSA? One month before I departed. Okay. Where, where did you go after that? Your O4, your Lieutenant commander? I went to a small, uh, command called a destroyer class run, which was essentially kind of a trying to apply business operations to the destroyer force. It, it, uh, it didn't last long. Um, but okay. during that time I ended up getting sent to Iraq. So I really didn't do really? much there. Oh. Mm-hmm. What, what, year, what year was this? 2000. Well, I got there in 2007. So you're almost when ready. I got, you're almost able to retire, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So you're 19 so, years in, you're in 04. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then um, I was actually waiting to become vice admiral, uh, vice admiral um, 
doesn't matter his name, chief of naval, chief of navy reserves. So I was going to become his, you know, his aide, and I got pulled to go to Iraq. So I lost out on probably the biggest career opportunity I'd ever had at that point to go to Iraq. Um, so I went to Iraq as an electronic warfare officer to do counter remote, you know, remote controlled improvised explosive devices or roadside bombs. So um, uh, I did that for about 10 months. Uh, so you're Lieutenant Commander Palmer at this time. Mm -hmm. What's your, can we just ask, get this on the record? What is your um, highest military award that you wear on your uniform? Um, bronze star. How did you get that bronze star? What, 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 what were you awarded that for? Okay. So there's two different levels of bronze stars. You have the one that is valor or combat related. Um, and then you have a, it's basically a wartime impact award. People in dodge bullets to get a disparity between our, I'm going to pause it for a sec. So you were saying there were two different types of bronze stars. Um, and I, I, I think it started cutting out a little bit. There was mm -hmm. one for valor. I caught that. That was in combat. What was the other type? Well, so the other is viewed as um, major impact missions that, major impact. that, uh, that are not necessarily related to action and combat, right? Mm -hmm. So for for my my bronze star, it's because I the equipment that we fielded the army with and basically all of the land forces with would try to uh, stop roadside bombs from detonating. So the impact then wow. is the number wow. one, yeah, the number one killer to our troops was roadside bombs, and so we were affecting thousands of people's lives um, by fielding this, the, the various types of equipment. And ultimately we were given other systems that weren't radio, you know, weren't RF radio frequency related. So we, we dealt with a lot of different um, counter improvised explosive device work. Right. So. Wow. That's very important work. Were you in country in Iraq? On the I, was, I was, I was in Taji, which is, um, just barely north of Baghdad. It's actually one of the largest bases in Iraq. Um, it's huge. That's where Chemical Ali was at, right? So oh. he met his demise there. Um, hmm. There's an airfield there. The base is half Iraqi military, half U.S. forces. Um, and it was one of the last ones to actually get closed. And you were there for 10 months? Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. What was the weather like? <laughs> well, I mean, you feel like you're, if you open your oven when you're baking, right? Mm -hmm. If you open your oven and stand in front of it, that's what it's like in the heat. It just Lord. is, you feel like you're baking, but you get uh, used to it. And then all of a sudden I can remember when it gets, so you really 90. do get used to it. Wow. Well, you it's, sweat like mad and I can remember over hundred really, degrees, really right? Oh yeah. Like one, one ten, one fifteen. At times, yeah. Wow. It's over 100 by like 9 a.m. Wow. Yeah. And your so, your uniform, is it, is it well adapted for this weather? Or? 
the folks that were outside, right. That were outside all the time. They yeah. had different um, uniforms that were quickly produced. They called rapid fielding initiatives and stuff. So the RFIs to get better clothing for them, but typically they were just a, a cotton rip, rip stop material. And then if they're standing outside, they would have their battle armor on with some, now it wasn't polyester type stuff, like what you would get with a dry fit, but it was uh, a cotton that breathed a little bit better. How in the world can you concentrate on what you're doing in that heat? Well, you have to shorten your watches if you can and drink lots of water. I've never seen yeah, as many water bottles in my life. I mean, they, they're huge. You just carry them around with you. Make sure you stay hydrated. But it is tough. I mean, I got sick a couple of times from probably heat exhaustion, close to heat exhaustion. I mean, you'll go to a gate, somebody, it looks like their uniform is like 12 shades darker because it's soaked in sweat. Yeah. yeah. So did you, work, carrying all that stuff. did you work with Iraqis? Not directly. No, okay. uh, it was a, it was a little bit too classified for them. So I didn't really, I didn't do that, but you're always around them. So whether they're interpreters called Terps, you know, so some of them are Iraqi, some of them were Canadian, some of them were U.S. folks, some of them, you know, they're from all over. Um, so you get to know them because they're serving your brigade commander, etc. cetera. Um, you also have them with the, any of your security teams that go with the commander. I wasn't with an infantry unit, but the infantry units, some of the infantry units would have Terps with them. So you're around them. Uh, my brigade dealt with sustainment. So there were some like business initiatives. They weren't really business because we weren't making money off of them, but it was like how to run a motor pool, how to, you know, because when the bath party was taken down, a lot of the folks had been so dependent on the government, they really didn't really know where to go, you know? So they would start different initiatives to employ people because if you're employing them, they weren't making roadside bombs to kill you. Right. So there's quite a bit of different initiatives to bring people on to do small, Jobs like, you know, put on tires on cars, run a motor pool, that type of stuff. But they had to get cleared to come on the, on to the base. Had, did you keep your top secret clearance all the way through your career? Yeah, I still have it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, I, I don't know what questions to even ask about Iraq because I just, don't know i've never been there and i've only talked to people that have been there um but uh when you when you look at your 34-year career does that 10 months stand out to you in a special way or specific way is i think i matured into it right so at first um like the culture between the army and the navy is distinctly uh different right Mm -hmm. um so at first i wasn't bitter initially but then when i was trying to train other people to do the job that i have uh, that's where i got a little bitter but was now it, that i look was back a joint operation it, well it was joint because admiral mullins and the, i forget who the chief of staff of the air force decided that they were going to send navy and uh air force in so what was the name of the operation that you were involved um in? it's called joint jix one joint uh Crew composite, joint crew composite squadron one. And then they would divvy out people to all of the brigades 
um, all the way up to the G, the G, you know, all the way up to like tenth or whatever your um, commanding general is for that that area, all the way down to companies. They would have um, different people in those areas to to guide the crew mission, right? Which is the um, counter RCIED equipment, right? Okay. Both fielding and teaching them how to operate the gear, trying to make sure they are always protected. So was part of this trying to figure out where these were in the future or where the, where they were going to be or oh, was it just yes. trying to find out where they are now? Oh, no. Oh, you mean like the actual the target, the, the actual bombs? roadside bombs? Yeah. Oh, there's, the, I mean, the, the effort to try to find bombs was in multiple commands, right? So they would have road sweepers go, right? Looking for them. Um, sometimes they would try to detonate them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would try to neutralize them. But there was there were many commands that weren't necess- weren't chicks one, right? There were other commands with other efforts to neutralize or detonate or recover in some cases, where when you find one that didn't detonate to recover them. And um, hmm. neutralize, I'm thinking neutralize. When I say neutralize, I'm specifically talking about through a means neutralizing without extracting the device, right? Um, you can't extract everything. And as you roll through, you have no idea if you properly neutralize, if you just drove through three roadside bombs or zero. But when you do find them, they will pull them out of the ground or wherever. So, and then after I got, you know, you're asking, well, as I look back on it, I can tell you going out and seeing these E1s and E2s that are driving trucks mm. or cooks that are on a gun, a gun, a gun crew. And you watch them go in and out of these fobs um, every day. And it's almost like they're fearless. Forward it's operating crazy. base. Fob that's is right. forward operating base. Yeah. Correct. So it's a mini base that's out, you know, out in the in the world and the community of Iraq. So that was amazing to watch. Right. Um, and so after a while you start to forget about like the, the things that may have made you bitter about the situation. And now I love it. I, I keep up with some of my army friends and um, I would do it again. If they asked me to do it, I would definitely do it again. Have a different perspective. I think. At the time, you know, it was 2007, the market was dying. I was losing equity in my home. I lost like 75,000, you know, and there I was, you know, and at that point in my career, I was possibly not going where I wanted to go, right, to command of a ship, et cetera. And I was ready to retire. uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned, it seemed like it was very briefly, you mentioned going to Iraq was a major decision because it, you gave up something to go there. Yeah. I was supposed to be the exact, basically the aide to a vice admiral, which is you're the right-hand man with the admiral. You're sitting in a room, you're, you're hearing yeah. what other high Big level deal. people are thinking. And it's a grooming piece. So when you, they pick you for something like that, they're seeing you as a potential for admiral. And I was the surface warfare nom for that, for that position. Um, the war took priority and the decisions were not going to happen on the same day. And because the one for Iraq came on the calendar before the one from 
the admiral's office, the war took priority and I was immediately withdrawn from consideration for the actual position. So I lost. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't choose to go to Iraq. You went, you were ordered to go. Okay. So. It's kind of a false, it's a false dichotomy the way I said it, (laughs) because oftentimes you choose your orders. So I, I went on two what they're called individual augmentation. So I'd already done one, which was counter piracy. Oh, and then cool. this one plot. Wait, 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 one, hold on. You, when did you do counter piracy? When I was on, on the ship on NHTSA pre-commissioning units are oftentimes pulled from manning because it takes them a while to get the ship ready, go through all the training before they deploy. And I got pulled for a counter piracy operation while I was on NHTSA. And then, um, well, so that wasn't what the NHTSA was doing. It was just, when no, it was still being built. That's right. Okay. I got pulled from NHTSA for six months to go. Do was that off the coast of, was that off the East coast of Africa? Yes. Somalia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the side that's near the middle East or Correct. you know Persian Gulf basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was that like? What was your counter piracy mission? Like you're not, you were a Lieutenant at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was a part of a planning staff that went on board. Um, we were assigned to three different ships. So I did some con ops, like basically wrote um, pre-planned responses, right? Mm-hmm. If, if say they attacked us, what would we do? Because I showed up right after. What ship were you was, on? I was, was for that, you, for that you, operation, I was on Oak Hill and on Vicksburg. I never went to the Roosevelt. How do you, how do you say, how do you say those were uh, those? How do you spell those? <laughs> how do you say them? Oh, oh so Oak, Oak Hill is O-A-K-H-I-L-L. It's an amphib ship. Oh, and then the other, okay, gotcha. mm-hmm. okay. the other one was Vicksburg as in the civil war battle, Ooh. Vicksburg, the city. So, and what kind of ships were those? Oak Hill is an amph- amphibious ship. Amphibious. Uh, it's one of the smaller ones. And then um, um, Vicksburg is a cruiser. It's a Ticonderoga class cruiser. Ooh. Yep. So, so you were totally familiar with the amphib. You knew how to drive it and everything. Mm-hmm. And then the yep. cruiser, what were you doing on the cruiser? What was your duty? And how long were you there? So total time was around six months. And then I was on Oak Hill most of that um, because Vicksburg got pulled to the Gulf. They went back up to the Persian Gulf and they needed the planning group to stay on Oak Hill. So um, I was on on Vicksburg the shortest period of time, longest period of time was on Oak Hill and um, Oak Hill. So because they have a well deck, they have ships, they have boats mm-hmm. in there. Uh, it's a different type of operation, but we were doing um, monitoring of the, of piracy activity that was going on. And that was, I mean, it was in full bore at that time. Captain, we, Captain Phillips, is that, is that realistic? Captain Phillips, the film, have you seen it? I, I have seen it and Tom I Hanks. know, <laughs> I generally know a couple of the operators that were there, but I also know some folks that were on the ship and yeah, I don't know if it's completely factual, but it looked, it didn't look crazy to me by, no. by any, by any means. Navy linguists um, get, get a, get in there. Navy linguists are featured on that mm-hmm. film. Captain yep. Phillips. So the, but that was after that, right? So Captain Phillips's rescue was, I don't know, a year or two after that. Okay. And then, yeah. um, oh, okay. but the, there was a ship that 
got into a little bit, you know, two ships, a cruiser and a destroyer that were attacked by some, some, some pirates, right? They actually were there before the Vicksburg and the Oak Hill were there. So I had to do pre-planned responses like what, ha- what, what are we going to do if, if certain tact- things tactically would occur? Um, I stood the tactical action officer watch for the ship, but I had to do a couple uh, different like theory perspective uh, papers. And I also had to work with a, a lawyer who was there. He actually was the one that flew into Kenya to turn them over for prosecution. Hmm. Um, but I will tell you like later on during that tour, we got the pirates that were, that were the ones that shot the cruiser and destroyer. We got them and then they were going to, we had to take them to Mombasa to drop them off. And then they would go on into the Kenyans would determine whether they were going to prosecute or not. And of that group of, I don't know, it's like 12 guys. Like there was two hardcore um, warlord type, you know, folks on board and the rest were all kids with knife marks all over them from trying to eat, you know, all addicted to this product called cot uh, K H A T. I believe it's basically like a, you imagine lemongrass soup or lemongrass. It's a little bit like that, but it actually has addictive qualities and um, they basically get them addicted to cot. Then they shove them on um, a small ship and then they go and try to board these freighters and ransom them for money. And we had those folks after we had captured them um, on the other two ships, they actually flew them out to us so that we could transport them to Kenya. And um, they were kids. They, you said they were they kids. Had- you said they had knife wounds mm-hmm. or knife scars from trying to eat. What do you mean by that? Uh, there's not enough food in Somalia, right? So there's no government there. The government was defunct. These folks were from like the Haradera area, which is like midway up the coastline past uh, Mogadishu North. Right. And so literally just existence was violent for them and they're young kids. So, you know, are they teenagers? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Barely above adolescence. You know, I mean like 15, 16 year old kids and they would, you know, initially when we'd feed them, they would like hold their plate really tight and they would eat fast and watch Mm -hmm. uh, because they're afraid of the other people that were in their group. It's not like they knew each other. Right. Uh, Then there was a couple guys that were hardened, almost like, you know, gangsters, you know, the kind of guys, um, and then I had to, we had to take them back to, when I took them back to Mogadishu, I'm sorry, Mombasa, not Mogadishu. We pulled into, uh, Mombasa and I can remember we had to, they didn't, the Kenyans didn't want them to know where they were. So we had to, um, basically put a thing over their eyes as we were going in. And I can remember all those young kids crying cause they were afraid what's going to happen when I go to Kenya and what's going to happen if I get sent back to Somalia, right? Cause there would be an inherent distrust for them because they were with the U S so what, what, uh, the Kenyans what, ended up turning them over and just dropping them off in Somalia. Were, were they armed? Yes. When, I mean, when, when they were initially taken, they were armed, but what they, were they armed with um, some had like RPGs and some had regular AKs, but okay. yeah. They weren't trained in them. They had no idea. Later on, I returned back with another ship um, and we were doing the same type of operations. And, you know, you can go in without your lights on and you have infrared, 
you know, capability to watch things. And it was an inter- intercoastal freighter, which is like a quarter the size of a big ship, like a container ship, you know. And they had taken that captive and we were watching them with our night vision. And they're like running around with no, like chickens with the heads cut off. Like they had no idea what they were doing. They're just running around the ship trying to, you know, take the civilian crew and put him in some form of order, but they were still high on cot. Right. I mean, they were still kind of high on cot. They were moving kind of crazy. And, you know, we hit the lights on him to tell him to, you know, t- that they shouldn't be pulling into, Mo- into uh, the Mogadishu area. And that's when they raised their weapons up. Like, and you could tell by the way they were holding their guns, they had no idea what they were doing, but it just takes one move with a, with the trigger. So we immediately kill the lights because we don't want to increase the situation. Yeah. And um, that ship ended up going in and was and that being a, held capture. Was that emotionally uh, difficult for you to do that mission? Mm, no, not really. Okay. We had, we done some other stuff. Um, I won't say where or the reasons for it, but there's some human trafficking that goes on and those that's a lot harder because they would uh, essentially the version of a coyote, right. Would take those folks across the water to another country and, and they were hardened cartel type folks, right? So they would barely be seaworthy. They would take this boat filled with human humans, go into a new place, right? And if they felt they were going to get captured or stopped, they just shove them, push them over the side, and they'd all drown because they don't know how to swim. So you know, you're trying to keep an eye on them. That wasn't during and- the counter piracy mission. It was that was a separate thing that you don't want to talk about. Um, um, it was on one of those deployments, but at a different period of time. So in a different area, you were, but you'd watch that was, you were a yeah, lieutenant yeah. at the time. Okay. Absolutely. I was number three, but anyways, as we go across, so you're worried, you don't want to, you try not to get the ship too close. Yeah. Gas turbines aren't quiet, you know, and yeah, you don't yeah. want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And then to watch the country and I will not say which one it was, but the country throw them like cordwood onto, onto non-skid. You know, they're all zip stripped on their hands and their feet and they're throwing them like non-skid on non-skid, just stacking them up, you know, and just think about, you know, I imagine there could be a bad character in the group, but many of them are just trying to go to a new opportunity somewhere. So one of the, one of those ships we were following and then, and uh, we couldn't go too close to the shoreline. And once they left our, our view, Reuters the following day reported like 30 dead bodies shot and killed on the beach right where we were at. Right. So that's hard. You know, that's, yeah. that's hard. And we were supposed to turn them over to that country and they would not answer their coast guard line. So Ooh. why in the world, why in the world were there 20 deaths and Reuters Reuters had reported on it. And it was just, that's hard, man. Like you're like, yeah, yeah. Mm. but you know, the world's harsh when you look back at your career was that how many what what do you think the most emotionally hard thing was was that was that it you think the human trafficking? Well, actually well i mean if you're so operations wise that's probably up on the top um i can remember although you know, Iraq, I mean, as, a, as opposed to being on 
away from family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or decisions you make okay. for your career that your family gets to pay the consequences for, right? That's probably the biggest thing now that I'm, you know, 52 at the end of a 34 year career, right? But operations, the other, no, let me think if there's any other one. Yeah, I think the first death in, in Iraq was, well, it wasn't me, it was a friend of mine's uh, responsibility. That was hard to deal with. Um, then on a personal, so that was basically an IED that went off. And my friend, he um, he lost his mind after it was over with because he had to actually go in and do some stuff after that bomb went off. And it was under a culvert, which is a water pipe that goes underneath of a road. And the uh, AQ, you know, somebody planted like three anti-tank weapons and like four 250 or 500 pound bombs underneath this culvert. And uh, when it blew up, blew up, it blew up and it was a, it was actually a civilian armored carrier. It was filled with civilians, like as in government service employees. And they were liquefied. That's how bad it was. And my friend had to go in there. And that was hard because, you know, you see this really good guy, like his mind was not good after that was over with. And then meanwhile, on my way, you know, on my way to Iraq, my wife is back home and she took in a homeless boy. Um that um, was right close to graduating. And then she got him through school and he wanted to join the Marine Corps. He joined the Marine Corps. I come back from Iraq and I've known him since he was in middle school. Right. And then he joined the Marine Corps. He was a scout. I was at war college. So only a few months after I got back from Iraq and he didn't last a month on ground and was sniped. So that's where I like, it was shot like right, right here, died while he was trying to, um, a sniper shot his buddy in the leg and he ran all the way back through the IDs, through all this other stuff to get to his buddy to do first aid. And he's laying over the top of him. The guy was shot in the thigh, the right thigh, right by the artery. And he's trying to hold him down and do first aid. And the sniper hit him while he was doing first aid and he died there. But, um, watching his mom grieve, you know, even though he was homeless, like they kind of started to get back together again. And it really put a different perspective. Like for us as veterans, what do we think? You know, we, we see that as part of the roles and responsibilities of why we joined the military. That could be us and we're ready to go do those things. But when you see it from a mom's perspective, as you sit across from a casket for a boy yeah. you've known since he was in middle school. Yeah. It, it, it brings things a little bit different than when you go to a funeral of a peer. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, he never had a driver's license. He never had a wife, never had children, you know? So it, it, it really brings uh, a different humanity to stuff that maybe while we see it, we don't get to feel it like that as very often. So I imagine army officers would have a completely different perspective on that because they see their friends and their families that have yeah. passed away, right? Or SEALs. By the way, the SEAL community takes care of their people so well. Very, very well. Even the ones that pass away and their family members after they pass away. But um, but as far as the hardest thing, the hardest thing is when you're busting and you want command of a ship, right? And you're doing everything. And that there's a lot of stuff that 
takes away from your family, right? You make decisions and, you know, not getting selected is tough, right? At that point. Um, So, I mean. Now you're, you're an 04 during the Iraq thing. And where did you go after Iraq? I had command of a reserve center. Actually, I went to war college first, war oh. college. Then I had command That's of a cool. reserve center for a very short period of time for surface warfare officers. It's supposed to be a, a two-year tour, but I screened to go back to ship. So they immediately pushed me back out to ship. So then I went to Normandy right after that. And that's a cruiser out of um, Norfolk, Virginia. Cruiser. Best okay. tour. Best. Well, it wasn't as operational, but. I love that crew. And so you, tell me the war college is in Rhode Island, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's in Newport. Is that right? It is. Yeah. It's in Newport. It's wonderful. It's a great, great program. Okay. That was how many, how long a year? Uh, it's really just a, a college year. So if you get there, they got people constantly flowing in. So nine if months. you get there, it could be a nine month tour or a year. So if you okay. get there off, off, where you have to go through a summer it, so, it's a year long is it masters you, it is yep it's a master's program it's called national security and strategic studies so you do uh joint operations you do a little bit of international relations type stuff and you do some planning and then in order for it to get the credit hours appropriate you have electives that you take so i was actually this is interesting for us is that mm-hmm. I took a class from Mr. Pollard, who was one of the primary China mines through, I think it was through University of Michigan. I can't remember exactly, but he was also on ground in Tiananmen in the midst of Tiananmen, you know, until they got kicked out. So um, lots of really good uh, scholars that are there. Was it tough uh, academically? No. I don't, I, I honestly believe that. Yeah, I think ma- master's programs are what you make out of it. If you don't make it, you're still going to graduate. And that's not just, uh, by the way, that's not just, you know, you could say, okay, that's a military place, but they did fail a couple people. I went to Norwich and I got, you know, I, my GPA is much higher. Um, but, I, you know, I think you had a better chance to excel at Norwich. Um, what, what'd you get? At but Norwich? I don't, what? I got a, it's a diplomacy degree, but cool. it, the, the hood that you wear is actually for public administration. And then the degree is really international relations. So it's international political economy, international relations theory, international law. Those are your foundational courses. And then you pick from, um, four different concentrations for the rest of your master's program. And that's a master's. And did you do that online or was that in on a campus? Oh, it was, it was online with, with um, like two weeks in campus, but okay. the, but I would, I would say that the readings and the professorship was on par with brick and mortar. Um, oh. Cause if you did not do your readings and you went to go do, you know, your writings online, it was a parent who read and who didn't read and, <laughs> and um, they Good. didn't get, they did not get, they might've gotten a C or something. I don't know yeah. whether or not they got a D or whatever, but um, 
yeah, they would call you out for not doing the due diligence in your studies. It was a great program. I'd do Norwich again. Did you feel like, I don't think I asked you this exactly about San Diego, University of San Diego, but did you feel like that was academically rigorous? Oh, definitely. Good. You didn't do the work. You didn't get the, I'm you didn't get the credit. Very glad to hear that. I'm going to add that two, to my notes. That's like 2003. I don't know what it's like to this day, but yeah, yeah, that's true. But, but so you, yeah, definitely. I was, so how uh, did you, did your family come with you to Rhode Island? Mm-hmm. Okay. I kind of forced them to, by the way, <laughs> but if, you know, if they would, okay. say, if they would do PC, if they would permanently move us, right. Because of the nature of constantly being gone. I would always argue that we are going to be together every opportunity we can. Yeah. And there's only like one time where I didn't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was tough. Um, I don't know if you know Chris isn't here, but um, not a big fan of that time where you're by yourself. Right. Yeah. You kind of need each other. You need each other. And yeah. it totally, it totally develops a different dynamic within your family. Right. Especially right, with your right, kids. Right. Yeah. So you, we haven't really touched about your family at all, but that's a huge part of Navy life. Um, mm-hmm. You've been in the Navy for 34 years. You're mm-hmm. there in your home. It's off, it's a military home, but it's your home now mm-hmm. on Ford Island, I believe, which is in Pearl mm-hmm. Harbor. Your steps, your steps away from the Arizona Memorial mm-hmm. <laughs> um, historic. What is that? A 1920s home? That's correct. That's mm-hmm. awesome. That is yeah. so cool. I'm so happy you're you're there. That's and you get to enjoy that home. That's awesome. So outside my house, and you got photos of it, but outside my house, there's a placard for the for the person who lived here at the time of the attack. And the guy, you know, who lived here um, was the first naval aviator airborne and flew in his pajamas for the day. Oh, Atta- that with, is again, awesome. Yeah. And uh, that is awesome. Later during, on, he, during World War II, right? It's just for the right. kids. The kid, hey, kids! It's World War II we're talking about. Okay, that's that's Pearl Harbor, right? That's the, the attack. So on there's there's an airfield in the middle of Fort Island, right? So he runs over, hops on his plane, gets airborne in his pajamas, and goes to fight. Uh, what's interesting about him is his next assignment is Midway, or is, yeah, it's Midway, the most decisive battle navy wise of world war ii and he is the co i forget if it was the squadron or the base so he's there present as a primary player for the greatest naval battle ever and then later on he makes admiral and unfortunately he died uh he had a heart attack while he was a rear admiral what was his name massey um i feel bad not knowing remember his first name is massey it's all right yeah well um, so you're, was that, is that airfield on Fort Island still operational? No, it's grown over. Most of the stuff here is there's other commands here, yeah. but, uh, it's grown over. Now I was going to say like Hickam is right there. So why would you need it? But, um, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, I went to college on Hickam air force base, <laughs> uh, Wayland Baptist university. So did Chris. Chris went there yeah, too. Yeah. I got a great education. I love that. I loved going to college. I, I, I don't know if you know, but I, I started and completed my bachelor's degree in the Navy on active duty. That's tough. And I was enlisted. So I finished before I left the island, which was amazing. I was able to go right into graduate school. Now you have a family. You're married. You have 
you you've been married to the same woman for the whole time since you were no i i had a brief marriage when i first enlisted but um okay yeah so i met her and we got married in 97 so we've been married 25 years yes so so i I think i remember you being Mm -hmm. married when you were at kunia and you have kids is that correct yeah we have five so three oh man uh, holy cow yeah so i raised five kids her first three and then we had two and now i have um five grand well i'm about ready to have five grandchildren so my daughter her water broke and they're unfortunately the baby's not coming so she's in the hospital congratulations man that's awesome and so you've been married i'm trying to do the math 1997 at 25 25 yeah that's Mm -hmm. awesome 25 years how many of those years have you been apart because of the navy and by by apart i mean you go to work but you don't come back to home she's holding down the fort at home on the home front how okay. many years do you think that would be? And I'm saying years because I know it is years, right? It's got to be years, right? Right. So really, point. I've been home for quite a few years because after Normandy. So I got off Normandy in 2013. So there's nine straight years where I've been home. I haven't, I haven't deployed. Um, that said, before that, my son. That's awesome. I was probably gone for... 60 to 75 percent of their life before yeah right in there is when you're on duty you know like what what people don't understand is you do duty on a ship so even when you're in port one out of every three days you're spending the night on the ship or one out of every five it depends on how many how many duty sections and then you're working 6 a.m to as an officer you'll work 6 a.m to well, five o'clock in the evening is an early night. As an XO, I would work till seven or eight at night and then go home. You were XO of the Normandy? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I think I missed that. Part. Yep. yep. You were XO of the Normandy and you were an 04 at the time? I was selected for 05, um, but I was an 04. 05 select? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And. What's the, uh, so you, when you say you were gone 65% of your, did you say your oldest child's life or was youngest, 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 um, you mean by 65%, you mean that night was spent away. That counts as part of the 65%. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I deployed. I've been on 12 deployments. I mean, no kidding deployments. So yeah, I'd say mm-hmm. somewhere around 60 to 75%. Now, of course, the nine year, last nine years have all been at home. I'm saying of the first 25 years of my career. Yeah. I mean, even when we were at Kenia, my deployment rate was 75%. Yeah. You yeah. Had a huge I mean, op tempo rate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You deployed a lot. I deployed seven times when I was at Cunea. Um, mm-hmm. and that was a lot. <laughs> I felt like it was a lot, but I think mm-hmm. you deployed more than that. Now, how does your, if this is too personal, feel free to just 
whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But how does your wife handle that? And how did you guys handle that as a married couple? Well, it didn't go well for the very beginning, right? I take a, a, an island girl off the island away from her family. And if you know Hawaiian culture, you know, everybody says family's tight. But when it's an island and it's a family, right, your whole life, because I guess rural America would probably uh, understand that as well. I mean, I took her completely out of that. So the first few years were tough. Uh, and then I was constantly gone, constantly gone. And in fact, one period on one ship, we weren't even allowed to bring our family with us. We moved the entire Western seaboard. We moved from San Diego all the way up to Washington state and families were not, um, you know, basically they wouldn't move them. So people for a whole year plus, you know, you weren't with your family. Right. And that, those were really tough years, right? What so year those, was that? That, that, that was for Tarawa. So that was during, uh, actually it was during Y2K. So right in the 1999 to 2000 time frame and i came out of that we were really uh, the marriage was tough you know because you're it's hard when you're gone all the time and you come in were you, you want to be o, a part of your did you say you were an o2 at that time or mm -hmm. okay yeah. you were an o2 okay that's right gotcha. i'm, tra I'm, tra so I'm you're, tracking with you but you're coming in and you're trying to take and lead your family and it's hard because they get a they yeah, get their own pattern behavior you know they're and when you're constantly coming in after you've been gone for a long time and then you come in, it creates a, a bit of chaos, right? So it's hard on the children. They need pattern behavior. They need pattern leadership. So, um, so by the end of that, you're in Washington state, mm -hmm. not Washington, DC, right? You're up there in a Navy base in Washington state. Well, actually you're on a ship, but a Navy mm -hmm. base as well. And your, your family is still in San Diego. Correct. For and a that's year, just for over yeah, a year. Right. That's one example of, of many, but you know, we come out of that. That's when it started kind of getting tough. And then you throw in, I'm done with all of that, right? And I go to college. Now I'm home all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. So <laughs> one extreme to the other. Yeah. It, it made it tough. But when we came out of that, we just basically we started going to church. Faith was big. I mean, I was a Mormon for a long time. And then I stopped going when I left Hawaii and, uh, we started going to church and we just kind of made that hardcore. Like it, we were not breaking up. We're never going to get it. Like we'll work through whatever the problems are. And there's been times where there's been a lot of disappointment, like trying to come back here or, or whatever, but, uh, we're doing wonderful at 25. Um, the kids have different allergic reactions to the military life as a child, but I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But especially switching general, schools and mm -hmm. are they in public schools? Well, all of them or were are, they, are, sorry, were they? Yes. All of them. <laughs> we, we did put them in some private Christian schools when they were younger, um, but did not do that in middle school or high school. So We've been trying to wrap our minds around all the, the as many of the technical details of your career and what it means. And, and you mentioned faith. Uh, what, what's been the role of faith in your 34 career, your career? Has it, has it been, uh, is there a trajectory or is there a pattern that, did it help you? Did it, was it not there at all <laughs> for periods of that? No, no. Okay. Well, um, 
You more? Are you still Mormon? No, no. Okay. So I stopped going to. Uh, I stopped being an LDS right about the same time I got commissioned. So that would be ninety-seven. And so would you describe yeah. that as a as a conversion, or what, how did you describe that? Well, I was conver- I was not Mormon growing up, even though my mom mom's family's all Mormon. She just didn't take us to that church. We were pretty much my mom and my dad are believers, but they just didn't go to church. Right. So they were kind of that, uh, that flavor. Right. And then I joined the Navy and for whatever reason, I, I, I became LDS for a little while and I, I distinctly remember exactly why I left. And then from there, um, I don't remember a lot of church at all until I went to San University of San Diego and that's when I met some people and started going to church. And that was just a, a four square standard kind of California flavor of, of, uh, Hope Chapel of church. What was it? Well, Oh no, it was grace church, but it was a four square denomination. Um, and that really actually from there on out, I mean, church, has been central to our family life with the exception of certain periods. Like when my granddaughter died, that was tough to process. Like we, we went really hard prayer and faith. And then there's a period where COVID hit and we stopped going to church because you couldn't in the state of Virginia. And it was just, that was a tough two years of not, not being, not walking. Right. You know? So, yeah. Because you weren't generally, around other people. Yeah. But generally, I can tell you there's times like when I was having a tough time on, on a ship, me and Glenn Powell, he would pray with me in the morning before the day would start, right? For for wisdom, for app, you know, for empathy, for strength and leadership, and you know, for a bunch of different things that were going on. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, Glenn's been an amazing, like example of good christian leadership for me for a long long time so uh, i don't think i would have made it through that period i don't think i would have made it through where i'm at today after leah passed without it um so yeah i think it's been central are you still with a four square church is that um it's that's a, a that's a protestant uh-huh. uh evangelical bible believing church that's correct. Yep. No. Um, but I would say I have to be in Foursquare. I just believe in yeah. biblical teachings for the Bible. Not you know, obviously, I'm I'm a little bit biased because of my Mormon <laughs> background. But um, I want to learn from the Bible, and I want to learn from a pastor who under, understands historical critical reasoning combined with language, combined with having a faith in the book, and bringing all that to bear. Um, and I also like. Uh, my last pastor in Washington state, he also has been one of his mentors was a messianic Jew. So there's a oh, lot cool. of Jewish culture. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I just There's think time. it's, it makes for a more robust faith when you yeah, get totally. to understand all that. Now you said you had a bias because you were Mormon. What was the, mm-hmm. what is the bias you mean? I, I you mean really like the idea of having a seminary educated pastor. Okay. I got somebody you. who can, who, Beyond just the faith is able to because you didn't why didn't because you didn't oh, have that as a Mormon. Right. No Mormons. Okay, that's the piece don't that do that people at are, all. That's the piece that yeah. I think people might be missing. 
right there's no seminary for mormons um at least when i was there there's no seminary for mormons so you were called what's the benefit of having a seminary background do you think well i think i think the bible is so complex to be able to understand especially when you're when you're bouncing from different prophecies through the books right yeah um if you understand what the context of the story means to both both culturally the understanding of the differences and the way language is interpreted mm-hmm. um, the different meanings that are that go away when there's english involved versus you know greek and yeah hebrew um, and then being able to relate that through faith into modern day and you know that appeals to me whereas if i read the bible absent of all that i'm i'm reading it through the context of my eyes at the moment in my life and i may not understand necessarily why they're talking about it and especially if you yeah. think about old testament versus new testament you know and christ and how christ um i wouldn't say change but the way he led out of the old testament into the new testament you could miss all of that if you just read the bible and just look at the words and think of it through your own experience mm-hmm. and so i think that's why seminary or or you know seminary taught professor or sorry pastors matter to me so you can say professor hey i, I spent six years in seminary i know i t- totally believe in what you're saying yep i'm not gonna argue with that you i went for straight from active in fact i was still active duty my first class at seminary mm-hmm. my first week i'm still getting paid i was on terminal leave um, now would you, when you look back on your long career, <laughs> would you say that it was worth it? Do you have any regrets? Mm. There's some, there's some choices I would probably not do again, mm-hmm. but overall I don't have regret. No, I think, um, Part of that's context of like, you know, health decisions that I've had to make. Um, but in general, I would say no. But if you, if, I mean, I, I've had people go, okay, so if you can do one job for 34 years, what would it be? Or, you know, that kind of, well, what did you enjoy? What did you actually enjoy from like, you know, and, and what pleased your own soul versus a professional rewarding experience, right? And though all of those, there's different periods in time where that each one of those, I guess, um, seasons of my life had different things. I can tell you, I would, I would turn right around right now and go do what we did for the rest of my life. Right. I could do that. Or I could go and be a leader on a ship. Now my wife would never like that, but being at sea leading sailors, there's nothing better, better than that. I'm going to ask a question because I know someone is wondering this in the future here. Yeah. Don't you miss your wife? <laughs> Don't you miss your kids? Well, we're talking about a profession, right? So yeah. do I miss them? Yeah. It's hard to explain to, you know, your wife, like, yeah, I love being at sea, right? Do I love being away from my wife? No, absolutely not. Do I love being away from my kids? No, but. So it's not like she don't, she drives you nuts and you can't wait to get out to sea. It's not like your kids oh, are no. driving you nuts. It's, it's not that. Well, some of them. <laughs> now they're all they're all wonderful but 
No, I mean, no. you can't do this job and hate getting underway. If you if you do this job and you hate under, getting underway, leave, because you're not going to do well protecting your country underway out to sea if you don't like being at sea. I mean, yeah. you know. It's it's I'm hard. Surprised to it doesn't weed more people out. To be honest with you, I'm su- I'm really surprised that there's so many people that want to do that job, because it is hard for families. Mm-hmm. It's hard on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm I'm. What do you love Just, about being underway? <laughs> I mean, is it um, is it your your because visual help us visualize what your day is like you you live in a very small space is there someone else in that space i mean i know as an officer it's different as an xo you have your own space right yeah but i mean like i've lived in 150 man birthing on a carrier yeah and that all was the enlisted, way down right? to having my own you're state talking about room. As enlisted yeah yeah i think you're when, when do you get me, your own stateroom like what what rank are you when that XO. happens so you only have it when you're at the very top or the very second to the top yeah, some places the ships might like. Uh, I think some of the department heads on an LHA they get their own stateroom, but okay. that's because they're all really senior in the, on that platform. So um, it isn't the you know it isn't the creature comforts uh, about being at sea that you that you're drawn to. I think it's I love being around people who want to be a part of a team and do things, and that's one of the things when I transitioned to civilian yeah. life i will be very picky about where i work oh man. because i want to have i want to be surrounded by people yeah. who fill a yeah. purpose in what they do whatever yeah. that is and uh i relate to that so i relate I to that do. yeah so that's that yeah, that, it's that it's a tough environment you know the sea itself is always against you you know you're having to you know be autonomous in the Navy, you're autonomous, you're operating your propulsion plant, you're cooking your own food, mm-hmm. you're doing, you know, everything for your crew. What's a food what's everything. a food like? What's a food like on on ship on ships? Well, it's it's changed through the years. So um I've seen it where they cook they cook the food. I've seen it where they bring it in bags and they boil them in the in in a pot and supposedly it's gourmet. They boil it in a you know boil it there in a in a plastic bag and then put it in their serving tray and i've seen it where you're on deployment and the cooks get to you know create their own meals because you don't get the same like cisco van that pulls up and gives you the same meals all the time right um yeah some of it's horrible you know pork adobo in the navy is not filipino pork adobo by any means right Mm. so What's, what's the uh what's the food what was the food like in iraq and do you say Iraq or Iraq? I say Iraq. Okay. Not Iraq. But I don't I know which Iraq one's right. It's just, it's I don't know. Just I say I Iraq. I see Iraq. Is, but what do the I know? The food was I don't know amazing. Like. The food was great. Was it and localized food? Was it? No. Okay. It was a def- The DFAC was run by KBR and KBR, Kellogg, Brown, and Root. I mean, you had like six lines in there. You had one line, which was a speed line, and then you had another line, which was the main line, whatever selections. And then you could go to another one, which was like a panini grill. Sometimes they would have the panini grill and like wings. I mean, like there, there's a, always pasta available. There was a taco bar. I mean, like it was crazy. Like, was that the best food you so had in, in your Navy career? 
Believe it or not, no. The two best places I've had food is Iwakuni, Japan, at the Marine Corps Air Station. That was good food. And sub at the sub galley here on Pearl Harbor was the best food I've had in the Navy by far. Really? Yeah. On the now, base of Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the this yeah that galley's well known for cooking great food. I think you know there's it, there were meals that we did like we would do uh, like on Nitsa we would have and John Glaze was really behind this but we would throw a thank you for the crew and so we would all dress you know we pushed it out of the wardrobe but the chiefs must have ended up taking it but the chiefs were all in their blues we allowed the crew to go in in civilian clothes. And we served them on the regular plates and silverware. And they were allowed to go in in civilian clothes with their party. And we would literally serve them at their table where they were at. Right. <laughs> and cool. the, the chief cook was cooking in the, in the galley and we were delivered. And it took a long time to do the crew that way. But that was awesome. Or we would do that at the end of the deployment for everybody who was what we call food service attendants to the wardroom. Mm-hmm. The wardroom is where the um, officers eat on the ship. And so we'd have all the enlisted who cooked food for us or served us. We would have them in the wardroom for a appreciation meal for them. Everybody that had served in there, we would do that for. That's but, awesome. And those are meals that stand out and they were cooked. They were cooked very well. Um, good food. So it is really important. Um, do you, do you smoke? Do you chew? No, I don't chew. I don't, I don't smoke, but I have had a few cigars in the past. You like, yeah. do you like cigars? I do, but I'm sensitive to my wife. Her grandfather passed away of lung cancer. Okay. So I, I did have cigars in Iraq. I ran a, a charity that um, out of Taji. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a cigar charity. It was basically a place for sailors, soldiers, airmen, and Marines to relax. So it was a coffee shop sponsored by Green Mountain Coffee. And they would give us enough espresso beans and some uh, what they called granitas, which is a fruit slushy. So when I was done with my work, I would run that. I ran that for the for the for operating base I was at. And then we built a deck, like a thousand. No, sorry. At the end, it was like 3,000 square foot of decking. Of volleyball courts, we had a flatbed truck that we used for a stage, and we would have entertainment every night because soldiers, whoever was there, would get what's called an admin day. They'd get one day down to do their laundry or whatever. Typically, right? Um, some sometimes they wouldn't get it, but typically, people had an admin day. So we had something going on every night at at that place. We called it the Mud House. Everything mm-hmm. from Bands from the FOB would come in and play to karaoke night. We had a comedian who would come in. We had That's cool. a DJ. We had all that stuff. But one of the nights was cigar nights. And believe me, I, during that period, I tried a lot of really good cigars. Oh, nice. Yeah, really good cigars. Would you say that you have any vices? Do you, do you like alcohol? Do you gamble? Mm. Or do you enjoy I'm- a card game? Uh- I think my vices are that once I get something that I like, I get a little OCD with it. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I coach baseball and, and uh, oh, cool. my son. That's yeah. Awesome. But I, for a long period had a fetish for high quality baseball gloves. 
which oh. I have which I have gotten rid of most of them in favor of bass guitars because I'm trying to learn how to play bass. But the the glove thing was just because mm-hmm. you like baseball, or was this some other kind of weird, sick, twisted thing that you like? <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't licking the licking the leather or anything like that. But um, no, I I think it was a little bit. My mom was a seamstress and a and a growing up, I I saw her sew. And so part of it's the quality of the leather, part of it's looking at the design and how they they're, make them. They're so, collectible. Yeah, some of them are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a, um, if you want to follow baseball, Fernandez passed away. He was like a crazy good pitcher out of the Miami Marlins organization. He died on a boating accident and his glove of the month is like a thousand dollars now right because they only produced it for a month and it's a pro quality glove i uh sold that for my bass guitar so how how long have you been into baseball since you were a kid yeah but um yeah i'd say so and then i played softball in the navy like at knee i played softball and then um what is it about what is it about baseball is it relaxing what is it i think it's a good to me, it's like life, you know, that's why I like baseball so much. It's like life, right? It's um, the little guy can win or the big guy can win or, or you're going to fail a lot. And then there's going to be a moment where you succeed. It's a team sport. You can't win by yourself. You know, you have to have good pitching and good fielding and good hitting. Um, I just think it's a great representation of life both in successes and challenges and i love it wow that, you gave a very biggest, thoughtful answer to that yeah. question like you really thought about this yeah you have yeah, a so like when philosophy I, of baseball yeah when i coach i don't talk about you know when i coach i don't talk about like going to the pros i talk to them about making their high school baseball team or becoming lifelong fans of baseball becoming coaches and i just let them have fun playing Oh man, that's huge. You seem like a very wise man. Um, you, how do you stay in shape in the Navy? Mm. As I get older, it seems to be harder. I used to run a lot. You have to make time, right? You have to, you have to prioritize it. Yeah. There's, it depends on where you're at. Some places like the chief of Naval operations will say that's part of your day, right? Three times a week. Um, you should be working out. Some commands are really good at that, right? And others aren't. And then as you get more senior, like for me, I, I find myself instead of going to work out at lunch, no one's bothering me. It's like I get like a lot of work done. Get work done. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and so what, what I find is it's harder now for a variety of reasons. One of them, I guess, is a little bit of a scapegoat. I can say that I'm working over over lunch, but um, uh-huh. um, but yeah, on ship it's harder. Short duty, there's generally no excuse. And you just do whatever works for you to stay within the body fat standards and be able to do whatever the service requires you to do. What what's your day like now? Like do you when you wake up, do you do you have coffee? Do you work out later? Mm-hmm. Do you work out right away? Do you, um how do you how do you wake up? What's your what do you have for breakfast? So you know, it depends on the day, right? So if I if I can telework that day, I'll go to the gym in the morning. Like I'll wake up with my wife. We'll grab like a, a cup of coffee what time? and then go work out. Um, I get up at five 30 every morning and then we get out of the house, you know, six 30, to go work out. 
And then um, I'll be teleworking about 8.15, 8.30. And part of that, to be honest with you, is a little bit of 06, you know, privilege because, you know, some of the others need to be there 7.30, 8 o'clock. Um, so I'm about 15 so wait, minutes so later. Hold on a second. You, tell, you tell them what to do? Is that how it works? No, no. Um, I don't lead like that. So <laughs> oh, really? What I, oh, no, interesting. The way, the okay, way I'm I glad, lead is, I'm glad I asked that. Yeah, I don't lead like that. I tell my senior chief, this is the mission. And, you know, we need people to be at the office around eight because those are customer service hours, eight to 1600. How he gets somebody in the office, if it's at, you know, if that person wants to go to work at 6 a.m. and get off earlier, it's that's up to him. He, he's he got the liberty hours, et cetera, as long as the mission's getting done. Yeah. I comport with my boss's direction to have people in the office to provide support over a certain period of time. And within that construct, my senior chief will handle the labor because I'll work past my, I work like nine to 10 hours a day. So if I get there at eight 15, I'm still doing nine or 10 hours a day. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, so. the, it's the Navy. So mm-hmm. uh, you delegate broadly. You trust, you trust your senior enlisted. Do you have a junior officer working for you? No, not where I'm at now. Really? Wow. You're very high up. Yeah. And then you have the next one below you is an E8. Mm-hmm. Wow. So right now I'm considered like a principal advisor to in the program. So I've, okay. I've only got enough people to basically do the advisor and orders role. So I'm in reserve program management now. Okay. So we're basically bringing in reservists to meet mission requirements both long-term orders and short-term orders. So we're doing that. We're doing programmatics. Like does the unit have the right structure? Do they have the right support to support the combatant commander? Those kind of things. Combatant commander, for those that don't know, is basically when you go to war, the combatant commander owns the, all of the joint service forces to execute the war plan. Okay. So they're the, essentially they work directly for the president. Wow, and they have constitutional responsibilities to Congress, so they have to do a independent report to Congress. Tell me again can, what what this element is that works directly for the president, com- the combatant commander. Combatant. So, commander. like, yeah. So, if you're interested, Admiral Aquilino just did his testimony before Congress, and I believe it's been uploaded on on YouTube. I know his initial one when he turned over with Admiral Davidson. That one's on on there, but. Uh, he just, you know, got back from his testimony um, two weeks ago, somewhere around there. Yeah, and that's what, part what of rank, What rank is the combatant commander typically? They're all four stars. Four stars, okay. Right. So remember when you said there's ten? Well, the ten only exist during war. If we ever, um, yes, I reintroduce gotcha. a five star. Right. So when you're when you're commissioned as an officer, you get a commission directly from the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's different than enlisted, because when you enlist, you don't get that. You that's why you call it a Mm non-commissioned officer NCO. Correct. Um, So the president can fire you. Is that right? Well, (laughs) obviously, I mean, I guess so. I mean. But that that's not typically how it happens. How, how right, he's, he's delegated that authority, right? So you can be fired, wow. though. Absolutely, yeah. 
Now it doesn't have those terms, right? So there are a lot of people think the military is just a, you know, a, another level of bureaucracy. And I think there's some truth to that, but um, I, mm-hmm. I do believe there are many others that see it as a professional as in yeah. the idea that you have a code that you are policed from within. There's a whole bunch of, at least academically, when you say the word professional is a professional, right? I'm not trying to say that others don't increase yeah. their knowledge of their, right, right, right. of their job, but the, the right. typical ter- definition includes lawyers and well, yes. military is one of them. So yeah, yeah, we yeah. will kick, we, we police our own force and kick out folks for non-complying with regulations, rules, et cetera. Is there a due process? Yeah. Is it, is it, do you mm-hmm. have to go through a court martial for that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Or, or for example, you don't promote fast enough, right? You're, Professional skills in that area are not up to speed with the pay grade, uh-huh. and you're not going to make it to the next pay grade. Okay. So then you could find yourself on the other end of that. Meaning so, in other words, retired. You've been, an 04, you've been an 04 for five years, and there's no six year 04s, you're out. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Or, yeah, the general context of that's correct. Oh, yeah. Yep. How long, how long have you been a captain? Three years. We totally skipped over your 05. <laughs> this is all the, all the commanders out there. So, so sorry. Yeah. Uh, and Lieutenant colonels. What, what did you do when you're 05? Um, well, I was, I had command of um, what's called a regional support organization. So during president Obama's presidency, he enacted what's called the shift to the Pacific, which was to bring more and more vessels and capability to the Pacific and that's what I was in charge of in the PAC Northwest or in the Everett area for surface warfare, meaning all the surface ships. So as ships were flowing into Everett, I was responsible to ensure that all of the capability that you would find in San Diego, whether it's training sailors and crew, equipment infrastructure, to even medical, right? Um, I was lining that port for greater capacity in those areas, right? Because at the time there was only two frigates there and they were going to pack the port. So, you know, um, Everett, Washington. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And there's also a little bit of like oversight over product, over uh, maintenance that's going on in the, in the port uh, for the ships. There was oversight in providing a place for people to go when the ship deployed. Right. Some people don't go with the ship for various reasons. I provided legal assistance. So if somebody did something really bad and they didn't want them on the crew with them, then I would take them. There's some really interesting stories, not fit for radio. But um, how long, how many people did you have working for you as an O5? I had a small command. So I had everywhere from 45 down to, to during different phases down to 25. Wow. It was that small. Is, it was yeah. small. It was mostly chiefs because the role was okay. to, to help them and mostly prepare chiefs. for different things. Like you'd help them prepare for inspections. You'd help them prepare for the training cycle, a bunch of stuff. I'm just going in here because the, my battery's about ready to kill over. Were you, will you be promoted to vice admiral or, well, sorry, uh, rear admiral? <laughs> Let me get no. my ranks right. No. Not a chance. No chance of rear admiral. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. 
back in her. No chance of her. Well, what do you say that? I mean, I'm. You obviously know what you're talking about, but I'm just wondering what what's behind that. I didn't have command of the ship at sea, um, and that's really what stands out to make Admiral. Even in the full time support world, which is what I am, which is reserve support, as a surface warfare officer, I need a dev command at sea. And as I got older, and, you know, I kind of I'm glad I'm, I'm narcoleptic, so. Um, I don't have cataplactic, so I don't like fall over in the middle of the day. But um, how long have you been narcoleptic? <laughs> I, um, know, I never knew that. Yeah, I would say I was probably narcoleptic from shortly after we left because I can remember. Oh my gosh! Just, you how know, did you do all that and and have that to deal with at the same time? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, good drugs, so modafinil, which helps. You know, what's weird about being the type of narcoleptic I am, I could, I could, if I didn't take my meds and I like nodded, I would still hear you. I can still, when, when you shake me and go, hey, I'll still remember the conversation that's oh my going gosh, on. That's crazy. While, yeah. So that's awesome. Um, but only for a little while until you started into like REM sleep, you know, but yeah, um, okay. I got you. yeah, so I think, I think it was a good, it was good. I think God had a, a handle in that because I mean, in my career path, I could still prepare, provide for my family. I still went to be an XO. I love that job. You were an um, XO at C, right? You had a C yep. XO command. Okay. So you were almost yeah. there. So I got screened for one below command at C and that's how I um, was competitive for captain. And I think it would have been hard to put everything into being a, a command at C. Cause if you look at like what happened with Fitzgerald or, you know, those command, those, those accidents, you can see why a CO would be really tired all the time. Right. I mean, you're always, yes. On the, yes. you know, you don't really get a full night's sleep. You're calling the captain all the time if it, you know, for different safety of navigation reasons, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You never really get REM sleep. So for me personally, I think God had a handle in that because I would definitely have the record for it. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I can't explain it. It should. I don't know that I would have given the. I would have given the crew every fiber of my being, but I don't know that my body would have been able to hold up to the to the test. Is there politics in the Navy? Certainly, yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, when people say that type of stuff, you know, I sit back and especially like senior enlisted will talk about it a lot right I, I hate the politics and i try to code it differently i'm like you know okay i get it there's the negative connotation of politics but mm -hmm. part of the politics is your responsibility to represent your people right hmm. right oh that's a good it, way to put it a, that is a power of influence for your people for the mission for the right so in a negative context yeah it's the person who likes bobby and therefore makes sure bobby gets promoted over others, even though you might not know enough about Bobby, right? That's usually what you hear or somebody didn't deserve an award or whatever. It was politics that they got the award. Okay. That exists in any organization. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and it's, absolutely. And, and so I, I don't know. So that you're, not, you're not talking about Democrat versus Republican right? Or, or conservative versus liberal, although that could be there at some point. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear what you have to think about that. But 
you're talking about just the power dynamics. Who's mm-hmm. the most favorite? Who's going to get promoted? Who gets yeah. the better duty station? Who gets? Uh, absolutely. Those, those all, those are all part of it. Like it's duty station, right? If the CEO calls the, the detailer, that's the person who chooses where you go. Mm-hmm. And they have some form of relationship with that person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in my, in my I saw role, that myself, mm-hmm. yep. in my role, in the community I'm in, there's more aviators. A lot of times the aviators get the good jobs. They know each other. Um, and that's, there's, there's reasons for that that don't even have a negative connotation to the aviators. So the politics are there. I just try to tell people, if you're not in some way influencing other people for the benefit of your mission and your people, then you're not doing your job. And if you want to call that politics, go ahead. Now, as far as traditional Democrat and Republican terms, we don't no. talk about it at work. Um, That's smart. Now, there are some some <laughs> that do, I'm sure. I'm just yeah. saying it's not commonplace. It's not but, commonplace at but all. But you have a com- you kind of get an idea of who's who and who's mm-hmm. what. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But Well, in language school, when I was sitting in language school, everybody pretty much had their cards on the table. I, I mean, I, I remember mm-hmm. having some pretty heated conversations, but... I mean, and not that I, think, I meant, I didn't mean to have a heated conversation. It was just like, yeah. they were shocked that I was a Republican. And they... <laughs> yeah. But I also think that, you know, when you're in your own peer groups, it comes out more. Yeah. I'll that's tell you good. that. That's fair to say. That's fair. Yeah. But probably not so much at work. And if it is at work, it's the closed door thing. You're yeah, not going to yeah. walk around and, and say stuff. What at yeah. quarters or where no, you can be no. heard. And I think that's true probably for every pay band, right? So I'm sure the enlisted do, you know. If, if it's um, a slow day on a deployment, then maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. But I but think people are more. You got, you work together, so you have to get along. Yeah. And, and you share every moment of the day with everybody too. Yeah, so yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You get to know people really well in the Navy. Wouldn't you say, is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that's true. I can give like lots of not so um, you get to know what they want you to know. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. I knew a I knew a I know a, a a child rapist, but I had no idea until he was caught, and I introduced my kids to him. Right. I mean, that's like I knew I know a guy who's an admiral now who had a one of his sailors try to kill somebody like you know, Dexter style underway, you know, so people are people, they don't change just because they joined the Navy, if that makes sense. But you do in general, the average people, you definitely know way better and they have become your family. Yes. Because you're around each other all the time. Yeah. And you, in I mean, some cases you you're around them more than your family family. Yeah. 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 Well, um, We've been going for uh, over three hours now, and um, I cannot believe how much we covered. I, I think I only had one more question for you. I had the politics question. I had the leadership. Um, 05, hit that. Family. Oh, I guess, yeah, I think the last question was I wanted to circle back to God how did you come to believe in God and why do you think that God exists? Wow. A lot of thought in that. 
yeah i do but that's pretty important right so yeah well first of all like when i went it's it's um changed over my life right mm-hmm. um yeah okay when i was younger i don't know it just was sounded right i remember reading red letter bible with my mom just sitting at home um but i think my like there's a couple things that really stand out for faith wise and one of them is when i was going to college and you know you're doing uh introduction to history like it was a history class believe it or not but they're talking about like from the primordial ooze all things you know and the common sense of that just makes my head hurt like show me any any example of where chaos generated order and let me know because at that point i'm like i'm done like how do you get specific dna order for labrador retriever i get that they're probably genetically altered but i mean like for specific genus and species from chaos mm-hmm. it i'm sorry I, I cannot get out of that without a god i mean there's there's one um from specifically within christian faith i don't speak in tongues and i know people have varying thoughts on it but when i'm in boston at a, I don't even know what denomination it was, but it was an all black. Um, it was the, the first black church in Boston. It was like right next to MIT or Harvard. I can't remember which one. And we were there and I'm hearing them speak in tongues, right? And then I go back down to Virginia and it is the same. I'm not talking about prayer language. I'm talking about speaking in tongues, right? And it's the same. And then being a language guy, you can tell these things, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but and then I go to California and I hear it and I'm like, it's not like you can go to a class and says, okay, here's which, how you can speak in tongues and here's the, you know, how it sounds or whatever. Um, that's another one where I'm like, I absolutely know. Then there's obviously the personal testimony element, right? Um, so you're saying they really were speaking another language or you're saying they were spe- it's very, very, very similar when they speak. Okay. Yeah, so you're um, saying it's legit. I think it's absolutely legit. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Now, whether or not the full biblical application of, of translation and all that happens, right. and whether whether or not that context is required at the moment, that's a totally separate conversation. I'm just saying. So God. You know, they gonna. So you're saying God is uh, um, the best explanation for the existence of order. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then, and then, you know, as far as. Christ, you know, um, it took me a while to, to kind of get around the standard stuff that, you know, people go against. And then finally, there's some elements I just turn over to faith. Right. Right. So, and I've had to do a lot more of that with when Leia passed, but. Oh, that sounds really hard. Yeah. But you know what? That's, that's part of life, you know, how would your part of life, but how would your uh, Navy career have been different if you didn't believe in God? Do you think? Well, you, you know, I know people think they don't have more that morals and religion are separate, but mm-hmm. I mean, what would guide me to do the right thing for people and not for myself? I mean, if I, I mean, think about it. If I, so it if impacted I believe, the way you lived, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the way you treat people, the way you believe in, in things and, the way you relate to people, I think having faith 
centers you on things that are transcendent of just being in the military, of just doing the mission, right? Um, is, it, is it a fear of God or what? It, what is it that is guiding you? You want to please yeah. the Lord? Do you? Yeah, I think that's probably the, the other side, right? My mind is bent more on service and loyalty and love and dedication, right? So do I fear? So it's not no. fear of punishment of God or is it? Maybe, I don't know. I don't think I'm there yet. I think it's, okay, there's a right. good reason. There's a good reason for it, but so you're saying I can't control that, Lucas. Uh, I can't control that element of it, but yeah, I can control yeah. my attitude toward it. So, am I going to sin? Absolutely, I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin another, you know, however many times, right? And I can't fear that element. I can just concentrate on getting back up again and moving forward. And I got you. I got you. Loving people. I mean. So you're saying when you look at just, I'm just going to be just at the level of God so that it's not denominationally specific, Mm -hmm. but just at the level of God, you're saying morals and religion are tied to that and it it does affect the way you live. And you may not Mm -hmm. be able to explain exactly how that works, but it has something to do with your motivation, your psychology of, Mm -hmm. of wanting to serve, wanting to do the best it's not a health, it's not an unhealthy thing. You're saying it's a healthy thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're not saying that an atheist can't serve. You're not saying an atheist isn't necessarily a, or is, is a bad person or something. You're just saying. No, not at all. I just find it a really complex argument to talk about it. Um, but I do think that I, you know, maybe I'm biased because I, I'm a person of faith, but I, I just okay. think when it gets hard, right, when you're when you're presented with dilemmas, right, dilemmas between yeah, dilemmas. the duality of man, your own your own bad decisions and good decisions. Mm-hmm. If you have faith that guides you through that without going after your own personal objectives, and knowing and to take back from one of your other podcasters, I think it was Miss Doctor Market. You know, knowing that you're, was it Market? Merchant, Dr. Merchant. Merchant. Yeah, Andre Merchant. He was talking about a totally different thing, but if you think about his concept of a maximally good or a maximally gracious God, right? So, you know, that whole conversation is the way I view, um, the way I approach my life, right? So if, if if I submit in faith, even for the things I don't fully understand, that he is maximally good, and I'm going to serve him, then I'm going to do it because of that inherent mm-hmm. personality trait of my loving God, right? So mm-hmm. um, and I try to transition that without talking faith at, at work. Now, sometimes right. I'll talk right. crap, and I know I shouldn't be doing it, but there's, <laughs> but in general, I'm trying to do that. Yeah. And that, that, that involves like, I've, I've had to lead, oh, you know, uh, gay service members and I want to make sure they feel loved by me right when they're with me mm-hmm. um, I've had some pretty uncomfortable conversations but the way I phrase it to them they know I'll you know I'll I, I love them as a Christian right you know I'm not gonna do anything bad to them you know they they know I'm gonna operate from ethics and morals and the, and military requirements so you're thinking you're saying that this has come up as a Mm-hmm. Well, you've been in the military for so long. There is all sorts of stuff about that that's, that's come mm-hmm. up. 
Um, right. Yeah, I mean, we were both asked where, whether we're homosexual when we joined. Yep. That was a standard question. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there's a lot that's happened in, in your career and it does impact. So you're, but I think what I hear you saying is that you believe that God created people in the image of God and everybody is equally created in the image of God. Would you say that's fair? Yes. Everybody has rights and everybody has responsibilities as creatures of God, whether you believe in God or not, that's still true. So an atheist is still created in the image of God. They still bear God's image. They have a false belief. There's no God. Is that fair to say? Right. And I'm, and I'm called to love them. Yeah, absolutely. Not the one that I'm not the one that. In fact, God, God will be upset with you if you don't. Right. Right. So now you love, how can you love your God, not your neighbor? Yes. Yeah. You, can't, you can't mistreat people. You can't. Mis- right. Now, now, whether that means that marriage is all of a sudden redefined, that's a separate argument for me. Right, I right, mean, I, right. that the, the definition of marriage is over here and that doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with how you treat people. Now I right. know that the pro def- redefining marriage people will disagree with that, but mm-hmm. you know, but that's, I think what the debate is about actually. Yeah, but I've also, I've also found that that debate is, use it loses a little context when christians don't oppose commonwealth marriage right i'm not saying all christians don't oppose commonwealth marriage but Hmm. you know there's not definitely not enough people condemning commonwealth marriage and if you're not going to get if you think about marriage the way a christian believes in it you know you're going to pick commonwealth marriage as okay Right. I, I think you lose a little bit of ground. Now, I don't know if there's a what, fallacy what, in what, argument. What do you mean that, by commonwealth marriage? Just so like, everybody knows what you're talking about. So like, for example, in some states, if you live with somebody for like 10 years, yeah. you're bestowed certain rights, particularly with health care, et cetera. Sometimes um, it's called common law marriage. Yeah. 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 And so I think if you think about marriage in the context as, as at least the, th- the three main religions believe in it, right? that that should go against the very beauty of marriage the very sacrosanct version of marriage and then you have the court coming in and going you live together for 10 years therefore you're married it's a tricky issue it's a sticky issue Mm -hmm. because you know you're bringing the state in with the government and, and 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 religion and and then there's another issue of how to, how, isn't there separation of church and state? Should the yeah. re- religion and state be separate? It's even right. more complicated in the Navy and the military because we have chapels on base. We have chaplains that are paid yes. by, the, by the government. Yep. And I mean, it gets even more complex when you get into civil unions. Yeah, right? that's true. Huh? But yeah, I think what I, what, what I typically attack it is I don't go to the, specifics and the policies right yeah unless they push it if they push it you know and then now you have all the other stuff with gender and it's like you Mm -hmm. can't keep up with this stuff and i i I see a lot of people on the the other side the progressives so-called progressives i say progressives they think they're progressives Mm -hmm. but i think i'm a progressive too i'm i'm and i'm interested in progress I, i mean that's my whole reason for what i do is progress but um, I just think it's kind of manipulative to say you're a progressive. I'm a progressive because I believe in progress and you don't. Well, it's like, no. And you also believe in conserving. It's not like I'm a conservative and I only believe in conserving. You don't believe in conserving anything. 
I mean, that whole debate about marriage, why would you want the word marriage if you're not interested in conserving something? Marriage is extremely old. When people mm-hmm. say the word traditional marriage, I'm like, what do you mean traditional? Everything is traditional in the dictionary. It's not just the word marriage, traditional apple, <laughs> traditional tree. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's just a language of just describing reality. And, uh, you know, why would you, why don't, why not just create a new term? If you are so against tradition, you love tradition, actually, you love it. You just want to shape it to your own desires. And mm-hmm. I'm against that anyway. But um, that's my view. I know that this this is your view. This is not the Navy's view. We right. probably stated that already. And so for the for the gender elements. Right. Yeah. There's risk at hand. And um, that's things like you're a. Uh, and, and I'm sure they've thought of this, but I put it in every one of my comments and they, they solicit it as my fear. And it's not really a negative opinion on the Navy's policy other than it would be constructive f- feedback is if you had somebody who did tra- you know, gender transition, they get in a car accident or they're not even doing gender transition, right? Most people don't do full gender trans- transition within the military. So they get in a car accident and they're in insert country that doesn't believe in that stuff right and what are you going to do and then on top now and you don't have a sofa agreement what are you going to do or you know so i'm sure lawyers have gotten together and they've got some high higher level of policy and vision but you know once the transition occurs um under at least the old policy right you're you're no longer able to know that they were formerly a female or a male so Hmm. They, they take the markers out of the out of the record. So, okay. um, I think the the other part of it that bothers me is actually more towards the the art, you know those that support it, and that is I don't like treating like people like yo-yos, right? I don't mm-hmm. like the military to be a yo-yo for for the politics of the day, right? So, yeah. Yeah. you know, people doing these life changing things, and then. It yo-yos back and forth, I, you know. So um, I don't. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll keep it at that part. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's just a, a feature of technology. I would say because <laughs> war fighting is further and further away from the battlefield, and when that happens, you're just. I think there's going to be a transition to treating the military more and more of just like a bureaucracy like the department of labor or Mm. something like that in Washington, DC, because you can kill people from thousands of miles away. And it's like a video game and Mm -hmm. you can't, I'm not saying you can totally, but the war fighting elements that are, uh, that are face to face are the most traditional, right. Mm -hmm. In terms of closer to what it was like in Sparta. Well, maybe that's a bad example, but, um, you know, just ancient warfare where mm-hmm. it's, it's warfare. That's what it is. Right. Right. And it's mainly men and it's, you know, <laughs> so yeah. And start when you start wondering what the difference between a man and a woman is, that's such an abstract thing. It doesn't really fit with warfare. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. warfare in the American plains, when there were Indians uh, fighting the army, I mean, they were mainly men. It was men fighting men. And there was no, none of these questions about what are you, what gender are you? I mean, and so I think the more um, technology takes over, I think the more 
uh, it's easy to just import poli- yo-yo politics like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, That's also, you know, it's a, if you think about it, right, what makes our military so much different than everyone else's? Well, we have civilian leadership over the military, right? Yeah. And so inherent with that. Which is, I think is good. <laughs> right. And yeah. So this is really, I guess, when I say I don't like it, them to be yo-yoed, the reality yes. You have civilian leadership. It's also um, politically appointed. So, if we're going to accept all of the good elements of civilian leadership, I'm talking about up, up way high, not not your standard civilian person, right? Civilian personnel person. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to take some of the negatives, and this would be one of them. It's just a yeah. I think I have, that's a good way to look at it. I think mm-hmm. you're right about that. I think that's a very mature way to look at it. Um, now has has that helped you as you've gone through your career to try to move up the ranks? Cause I know there's a lot of politics and you got to watch what you say and stuff. Mm-hmm. Looking has at it that having way? faith in the overall system helped? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah um, but mostly yes. You are, there's- you are directly in line when we're talking about God, just the other uh, minute mm-hmm. when you were talking about religion, morality. I said, how did, how would God, not believing in God have affected your military career and you immediately to morality. You are directly in line with the vast majority of the founders, um, the best of the founders. And Mm -hmm. I mean, people that were against slavery, they could see what, what it, what it was for what it was. They were um, the, the people that, that fought the civil war and won and, and ended slavery. They all believe that there's no way you can separate morality from god i mean just look at lincoln isn't a mm-hmm. good example of that so you're in you're in line with the best of the american tradition i'm not i'm not i'm not including the race racist part of that i'm i, I don't consider that the best of the american tradition mm-hmm. so you're just totally in line with that and so I, I appreciate how you look at the world and but you were about to say i think you're about to answer a question or something what were you about to say no what? okay well, um, you are very thoughtful. What would you what would you like to leave everyone with that's never served in the Navy, never been in the military, that doesn't know anything about it? What, what would you wish that they knew that they don't know? Anything? Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty no, broad. No, no pressure. Um, no pressure. Well, I, I think one, I would say we're cut out of the same cloth as you initially, right? So we just have a different training set, just like you do in, you know, the hospital you work at at home. Mm-hmm. So, while I, I like the idea of of honoring service, etc., um, I think that the more we separate us from you is bad. I mean, like like automatically believing um, that we're s- something different from the civ- civilian citizenry that we're we're meant to protect can be problematic right because we're supposed to embrace and embolden and and um, strengthen that which you do every day right that's the 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 concept of our of our country right a civilian run organization meant to protect the values of our country and if your values are different than our values then we've gone off course so um that sounds circular i think but um Sometimes you're saying, folks, you're saying is the deep state running the country is not good is what, what I hear you say. Is that what you're saying? I will avoid getting censored by YouTube. 
I don't know no, if we I, mean that that. Like... I don't think we would. Okay, how about the administrative state? Uh, that's and what I mean is you don't want bureaucrats that right. can't be fired. They don't stand for election. You don't want them making the most important decisions. Is that fair? Well, they say? do. I know I mean, they do. I know. But I know. I, what, I, yeah. what I'm trying to say, though, is that yeah, you have yeah. polar extremes on the way they view the military. Like, you know, you're the you're the prodigal son returning and you're amazing. Or I don't trust anything the military does. And what I'd say is in the core, in the middle, is the need to understand that we represent all the good things that you want in your country. And we have polars like them. We're on the edges, right? But in general, if you can, if, if we are viewed as separate apart from our citizenry, either in values or values to our country, we're going the wrong direction, right? We should, and if you think about Clausewitz and his concept of, of war, right? Needing to have the civilian populace is, you know, backing our approval in order to win a war. Well, if we're separated, right, we're viewed differently. Um, yeah. In the wrong ways, mm-hmm. then our country's gone the wrong direction, right? Mm-hmm. So that's my opinion. Do you feel like you have free speech in the military? No. Okay. Because, like, I mean, sitting here, uh, like, why don't you go ahead and criticize that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Awkward there's, position. there's a good point because at no time do I get to not be a naval officer, right? So as I'm thinking about what you're asking me or whatever, I, I want to make sure I, I, I'm truthful. But if I don't want anybody to misconstrue something um, yeah. in a manner that is that would degrade our services, right? Um, okay. Do I believe in everything we're doing? Mostly. And um, I will tell you that I don't have very many moral um, conflicts oh, that's that or with people. So that's, um, that's important to me, but. Well, really, we question. really appreciate you coming on captain William Palmer, United States Navy have 34 years of service. Holy cow. So you're like going to be 75% of your base pay when you get out. Right. Or is it more mm-hmm. than that? Can it's you get more? more? You can get yeah, more. Cool. Yep. They've enacted 2.5, just like every 2.5%. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I'm glad for your sake and your family's sake. Uh, we really appreciate you um, talking to us from your historic 1920s Ford Island in Pearl Harbor home. And um, so we, we all salute you. Appreciate it. It's service. a privilege to serve. <laughs>